This is Teen, your host, and um, I've got two special guests. I've got Mike. Say hi, Mike. Hi, guys. And Samlong. Samlong, how's it going? Hey, guys. Uh, Mike and Samlong, you guys are, you know, I asked you guys over Twitter. Uh, we're Twitter moots, the, the three of us. Um, and I asked you guys if you wanted to join and hop on and talk about um, what's going on in Palestine, Israel. Because, you know, I host this Twitter space with Carl and uh, John Peng, um, who, and you guys always hop on uh, to this space regularly and kind of give your insights into and your thoughts about, you know, a lot of political and foreign policy type things. And I really enjoy your input. And I thought, you know, let's 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 talk to you guys directly a little bit more about this in- event because I think it's a pretty important event. Uh, but before we get into it, why don't you guys just like Mike? Why don't you you start uh, just give a little bit, you know, little intro about yourself, where you are, etc., and then Samlong, and then we'll get into it. Yeah, so I'm a Canadian currently residing in uh, New York, and I basically am taking uh, probably an indefinite break from uh, graduate school. To help out with the family business and then see where to go from there. So, you know, I was uh, I was doing a PhD in political science up in Canada. So, but uh, you know, pandemic and a lot of other things, reflections. So now I'm kind of in a transition transitionary fa- um, space myself personally. Got it, Samuel. All right, hey guys. Uh, yeah, so I'm a engineer here out in California, um, and. In many ways, like um, I listen to uh, Teen Yu and Carl, and I have a very similar background to Carl, but um, but Carl is much smarter than me <laughs> in terms of from an <laughs> academic standpoint. Yeah. Um, so, but it, it's kind of the same track. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Caltech. I, I I went to Cal Poly, which is not uh, quite as prestigious as uh, Caltech, but nonetheless, it's um, similar immigrant background story. Um, but you know, like my parents uh, came from a background where they were much poorer and farmers actually in China, and then immigrated to the U.S. Um, but as far as like politics, it's um, a lot of my politic background actually uh, has a lot of relations to um, one of my best friend um, when I first came to the U.S. and he's Vietnamese. And uh, we had we struck up this friendship because we have a really close tie to kind of our Asian roots. Um, and he's always been very uh, political in terms of uh, his viewpoints and, um, and his outlooks. Um, so anyway, but that's kind of my background. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Um, like I said, I've always appreciated the fact that um, I, I, I appreciate the way things go on Twitter a lot. I feel like there's a lot of like Asian diaspora on there who are what I would cons- who I would consider free thinkers and are not cowed by, I think, a lot of what, the intimidation tactics that we see in terms of trying to keep us apolitical, trying to box us out. And um, I, I myself was not particularly politically act, you know, interested i wouldn't even say i'm politically active i'm not but i would say that the the experience starting in around 2015 2016 
and the increasing amount of sinophobia that really went into turbo mode during COVID put me in a position where I started really to understand, like I started thinking back, like, wow, is this what, you know, South Asians and Arabs and Muslim, like, you know, Muslims um, in America felt after 9-11. And I, I started to feel retroactively sympathetic to what might have happened to them, though I wasn't, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't really paying attention back then. Uh, and now it, we're full circle again. And and I feel like with what's going on now, and you know, there was already been a murder of a child, um, a Palestinian child in the US in Texas. And we're, we're full circle. And I thought, you know, there's so many people out there, there's so many Asian American activists who I don't look up to, who I don't respect, who flap their lips a lot and say, you know, where were you when, you know, Muslims and Sikhs and others were targeted during, you know, 9-11. And I'm wondering how brave those people are now that to do that, we have to, in a way, honestly speak up against Israel and what Israel's doing and how comfortable they are doing that in an academic setting. So, um, sorry, that was a mouthful, guys, but that's kind of where my head's at. We, you know, are how, how are you, um, I guess... How are you guys thinking about what are your reactions, your initial reactions to the, you know, the initial attack by Hamas in Israel? And now this sort of like mass, I don't even know what to call what the hell they're trying to do. I mean, it is, in my opinion, a Holocaust level event. It's certainly like a second Nakba, uh, however you say that. Um, and it's a very, very momentous <laughs> event and a decision that. I, a choice that faces Americans in terms of whether we actively stop this or whether we silently endorse it or actively participated in or what, like what, what is, what situation do you think we're in right now? Um, when we start with you, Mike. Um, so I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent. Go ahead. Uh, so, you know, I was talking to one of my uh, Jewish buddies in grad school and I basically said, I think, Israel has about four options. This is, you know, two or three years during the pandemic. You know, we would go on long walks and then we would talk about, reflect about various these things. And, you know, as a good friend. And I said, I think Israel has four options in front of them. One is to continue the status quo. Two is a one-state solution. But if they do the one-state solution, they will not be a Jewish state anymore. Three is to have a two-state solution, where they could be a Jewish state and a democratic state. The one-state solution, they wouldn't be a Jewish state. They'd be a democratic state, most likely. Or fourth, the third one, I basically said, I think there is a possibility that you could get genocide. You could basically get ethnic cleansing, basically a second Nakba. You get rid of all the people, and then basically then you can have Israel as a Jewish state and, you know, a Vorkian democracy, as you will. And my initial reaction is, you know, it was pretty much like, I, my God, this, you know, I, I was thinking rationally through that, but my God, this might actually happen. And this is terrifying. And for me, I think what was also really terrifying and really disturbing is just the amount of Western acquiescence 
to what the Israelis are doing in the sense, you know, just, 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 you know, the complete unleashing of the bloodlust that I thought maybe Western societies might have learned better not to do this after September 11. And the thing that also, you know, really surprised me from that is the United States and Europe were not directly attacked, yet it is acting in such a way the media press is, you know, disseminating as if we were attacked. And that's something really, really disturbing to me. So I'll leave it at that. That was my initial thoughts. So like my perspective on this is that um, I find it interesting that a lot of people think that what Israel is doing is in the interest of Israel. But if you look at it in reality, it isn't, right? You look at the long-term future. um, What is the prospect of a peaceful region? If Israel continues the path that has taken of uh, basically ethnic cleansing, um, in the long term, it's not going to be a stable condition. It's not going to be good for his future because Israel is surrounded by all neighbors that are not friendly to um, the viewpoints that they currently hold. So then leads to a question, why is Israel doing what it's doing? Because it's not uh, beneficial to it in the long term. So then I think that's where we have to kind of look upon and say, um, you know, is there somebody else that is kind of pulling the strings or doing what it's doing for its own interests? And when you look at it from the perspective of like, even Europe is buying into it, even though they, you know, they themselves have um, no direct link to a lot of the issues um, besides perhaps a lot of migration and stuff like that. But other than that, like they don't have any ties to it, um, just as Teen point out. Um, so, and I think it gets into the situation where a lot of what is happening it is under the influence of the U.S. and that all these actions that's been taken is not at a direct benefit um, for Israel, but I, I think it's more of a direct benefit to the U.S. in maintaining um, some kind of um, military presence that could be in that area to try to um, have its influence in there. So anyway, so that's kind of I got to wonder, though, like how much of this is actually Netanyahu and his a personal. I mean, look, none of this is actually surprising, right? In the sense that this is what Netanyahu has actively said, like over and over, which is we need to. He wants to escalate this into a full scale war against Iran. And, uh, you know, I feel like his real target is Iran. And this genocide is almost just a sort of hostage slash bait you know i think of it kind of like a bond movie where um you know someone's you know the villain wants to get capture james bond and they'll say you'll never get him you'll never find him and the villain says you know i don't need to find him i just need to find someone he loves and this is like every other bond movie right and then they 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 capture bond's girlfriend or his thing you know whatever someone he loves and they and then that will draw bond in and i think like that's kind of how I see this is that it's not really just the destruction of Gaza that he wants to do. He wants to do it to so inflame Iran uh, and other states in the area that it's going to escalate into a full-scale regional war and the United States is going to have no option 
really no vi- no real option than to go to war and we're going to be led into it by Netanyahu and i think that's actually why i don't know what you guys are what how you interpret how the mainstream media has been reacting to this but i've seen a surprising me a surprising amount i would say in the wall street journal even which is like the most hawkish and neocon out of the major us newspapers to be publishing photos of dead palestinians on their front page to center the palace, the, the 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 coming um, humanitarian crisis, I I do think that there are, there is a, you know, beyond the elector- elected officials who are complete clowns, and and it's just a it's just a struggle to see who's more crazy, but where. In the in the deep state, like in the State Department, in the Pentagon, in the intelligence agencies, I think they kind of recognize that we're being led into something by a madman, and we actually might need to start putting the brakes on. That's a hopeful view, but I don't know if you guys agree with that or not. But I I think like even Joe Biden today tweeted that the vast majority of Palestinians in Gaza are innocent and they're not responsible for what happened. So I'm I'm thinking that right now like. The U.S., you know, military intelligence and diplomatic establishment is actually terrified of what might happen. But, of course, they don't have the balls to stand up and do anything about it. But maybe they're trying back channels. I know Blinken is trying to, you know, shuttle all around every country in the Middle East trying to, you know, he even reached out to China for China just accused of genocide earlier in the year. He actually reached out to them in hopes of trying to. Maybe you know backdoor uh, relay messages to Iran, to Tehran, and to Moscow for them. I don't know. But See, but that's the thing, right? Like, what will be the end game if if uh, Israel is to get Iran um, involved in this situation? Like, for Israel to feel secure, I mean, to to have uh, the type of state in which Netanyahu wants, I mean, it requires that whole region to be completely bombed to shreds uh, and that they're no longer, you know, an Islamic uh, country around for them to feel secure. Because how else are you, I mean, like, again, like what's the angle, right, for Israel in doing that? I have no idea. And I, think, I really don't know. Yeah, so, so the thing is that, like, um, there was somebody on Twitter that uh, posted this, uh, his viewpoint on, why on why he think Hamas did what it did. And I kind of understand it where he's saying that like what Hamas did is more of trying to draw attention from the world into the plight that is truly happening in Palestine and to the Palestinians. Um, because I think that it has been kind of like a slow genocide if anything, in terms of you look at the uh, living condition that they're in, you look at the apartheid state that's gone through, even though there are some press that is covering it, but it's never been like the, the global outreach never reached a height in terms of uh, the current situation prior to Hamas, right? So it's that slow death of the Palestinians, whereas with Hamas going in there, it wretches up the level and it gets the global um, audience to pay much more attention because they knew 
Israel was going to react the way they did. And, and, you know, and we're seeing a lot more um, just the common people uh, looking at it and saying like, hey, this is, you know, this is a plight of the Palestinians. And you look at kind of the genocidal uh, response in which Israel has taken. So um, because, again, like you also have to question, like, what benefit does Hamas uh, 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 have by taking the action it did? Because when when that first occurred, my first thought was like, wow, this is going to be bloody because I know Israel is going to respond in kind tenfold in terms of what they're going to do, you know, um, especially given the surprise nature um, and how, you know, they were unable to react. Um, and then, and sure enough, right, Israel respond um, and, and you, and now you're having so much sympathy from a lot of people, definitely not heads of states, but just the general populace. Um, so I think that there's that angle to look at in terms of uh, how it started with Hamas and for what purpose. Uh, I'm curious to get you guys' thought on that. Let me let me ask you guys a question, because uh, I don't really know the history of Israel like at all, to be honest, uh, other than just kind of superficially. But like when people say one state versus two state solution, it kind of confuses me because aren't we sort of in a two state like condition right now? There is a Palestine. There is an Israel. There's supposedly yeah. fairly clearly delineated borders, which are not respected by Israel in the sense that they have ID, you know, they have military presence in the West Bank. They have mili- they had military presence in Gaza. They have settlers that are kind of breaking, you know, that are just totally not respecting these borders. So is that, but, but formally it's a two state condition, right? Um, in the, in... Yes and no. So, you know, in the nineties, there was the Oslo Accord that was uh, established and that was basically to create the, I think it's the PLO. I'm not an expert on this region, so you got, probably got to double check me here to create the PLO. And that is basically a preliminary stage of forming some type of Palestinian authority. That was like Yasser Arafat's. Yasser uh, Arafat, exactly. And, but the problem is in, in creating that in a way, Yasser Arafat gave a lot of concessions and the enti- the in- currently the existence of the Palestinian state, if you can even call it that, is entirely dependent on Israel. And, you know, as you were saying before, you basically had, uh, you know, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, the the term Bantu stands, right? So you basically, Bantu stands, right? Like, in uh, I explain it, I've heard of it, I don't really know what it means. So it's like, uh, these ethnic conc- enclaves that you would have basically concentrated in South Africa, you would have basically just a black majority there where South Africa, you know, doesn't do anything, just doesn't, uh, this was during apartheid. And then you had a black majority population, kind of its own country, Lesotho, I think it's his name. I'm I'm not too familiar, but you kind of have that condition. So you basically have a Palestinian majority area that's just kind of like around there. And then you have Israeli settlers going in, in basically into various parts of the West Bank. Right. So I don't know when the last numbers is, but there's hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers in the parts of the West Bank that is nominally technically supposed to be where a future Palestine state is. Right. Okay. mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I think that like if we look at the map of um, the land that um, Palestine possesses and Israel possesses, it's clear that you know it's constantly changing, right? So there's no um, no set agreement in terms of what a border is, and I think that that's part of the problem where Israel continues to expand and own property, um, and there's no there's no international, um, or there's actually absolutely nobody that can prevent them from doing that, right? And and I think also um, the West, especially the U.S., is not doing anything to discourage that. So um, as far as that two-state uh, situation, it's just not a reality, even if on paper it may indicate that that's the case. I see. I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, before the Hamas attack, I think there would still, I do believe it was a possibility. And people say, well, what about the settlers in the West Bank? And I basically said, look, all Israel has to do is say that if you're going to stay there, you're no longer Israeli citizens, you're, you know, you're Palestinian citizens. And basically, you know, you're subjected to Palestinian state laws. Virtually 99% of them would come back. Of course, Israel's not going to do that. So, you know, so where did these borders come from? So this is the thing. So in 48, you had basically, is it 48 or 47? I don't remember the partitions, right? So the UN drew a formal partition line for Palestine through the Palestine mandate, right? Without, without consulting Palestinians. Without consulting Palestinians. And, you know, basically it's just some random line. And the thing is, you had a lot of Israelis, uh, paramilitaries coming in at that time. And, you know, they were fighting the Palestinians and basically there were some atrocities that were committed on the Israeli side in which, you know, quite a few villages got massacred and use and setting that as an example, a lot of Palestinians feared for their lives. And through that, basically, you know, 700, uh, I don't, uh, hundreds of thousands, I think it was 700,000. You, you have to look up precisely the numbers basically fled from various parts that are now today Israel into the 1967 border or that they used before that war where you have the West Bank and uh, Gaza and Gaza right Wait, sorry sorry so the West Bank and Gaza as as the lines are drawn today which you can see on Google Maps for yeah. example are those that's the 67 borders or is that the 48 border that's the 48 to 67 and then 48 I, to 67 okay so yeah. pre 67 that's what we're looking at yeah. Okay. And then what's post-67? Post-67 is basically you got to look within the West Bank. And there's basically, a you know, parts that are Israeli settlements. Ah, uh, okay. And then there are parts that, as I was saying, the Bantu stands, right? Mm-hmm. Basically just ethnic enclaves of Palestinians. And the resources that go in and out are fully controlled by the Israelis. And you have the Israeli military within the parts of the West Bank. And those are not clearly defined borders, obviously. Those are constantly changing, I'm guessing, with settlement activity and things like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, I got to I got to say, and Gaza's one. I don't know exactly where the Gaza border comes from, but I'll look at the West Bank border. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at Google Maps uh, under just the regular, you know, the regular Google Maps setting, it looks like a pretty large chunk of what would otherwise be considered the larger state of what was Palestine, right? Now, if you turn on the terrain function, it basically just is a line that 
traces the base of those mountains, which I don't know what that mountain range is called, but um, it, it basically just gives all the mountainous regions that seem less traversable, less, you know, uh, easy to farm and build cities on. It's just the mountain areas. Am I wrong? It just looks like they took the mountain range and they just traced out the mountains and said you could have the mountains. Uh, so it, it's... Uh... Let me see if I could find a map, and then I'll send it. In the oh, chat. Yeah. yeah. One second. Because there's generally, <laughs> no. you know, it's funny because, I, I, you know, it's so funny, man. I When I was a kid, you know, uh, I grew up with a lot of Jewish kids, and I would go to Taiwan for the summer, and they would go to Israel. And ever since I was young, I've noticed a similarity between the two. The similarities are quite deep, but one I've never noticed before is this similarity in geography because on the west side of israel is you know all where these where you know on the coast is where all of the sort of arable land and buildable land is and then you've got these mountains where there's really not a whole lot you can do there and that's taiwan i mean taiwan is it it, it really looks similar to taiwan it's, it's kind of crazy um like the whole eastern, the whole eastern three quarters of Taiwan is basically just these mountain regions that, um, you know, really can't be developed at all. So I sent a picture on through Twitter. Okay. I don't know if you guys could see it. And basically, if you uh, yes, you guys yep, see that see picture. so just these white areas. Ah, okay. That's where the Palestinians. So you have the formal border. Yes, that is basically of the West Bank, but you have Israeli settlers. I don't know how old this map is. I think it's even basically less areas. Israeli settlers are coming into the West Bank and settling those areas. And then, as I said, you know, with those, you know, areas that are white that you see there, that's where the Palestinian majority is, and where the Palestinian Authority, you know, nominally has control. But when the UN or or was it the UN that drew that border? You said or um, so that so the original border pre sixty seven yeah yeah pre, so pre so that border was basically out of the struggle between um, the the pre sixty seven was a struggle between in the forties between the Palestine mandates. So basically, you know, you had the Palestine mandates, and uh, what is it? You had the Palestine mandates. And, uh, you know, there, you know, the state is to be declared. And then you had a lot of struggles between the Jewish paramilitaries and the local Palestinians. And then there was quite a lot of atrocities. So basically, a lot of Palestinians fled a lot of the areas. And that's how you get the 67 pre 67 border that comes. The okay. mandated uh, territory is actually different. But I'm saying what, what was the legal enforceability of that at an international level? the the pre-67 borders like what this has always confused me is like there they, there are these clearly drawn borders from that 48 to 67 period but what what was the enforceability of that at an international level was israel did any like did did you know was does the un view that as a you know like what <laughs> What is this border? <laughs> or is this, like you said, we should think of it as a Bantu stand. It's, t Israel is really uh, an apartheid state, and these are sort of, you know, apartheid borders or, you know. So, I mean, th that's beyond what I know. Yeah. So okay. I can't give you an answer. So, 
I'll send another picture if I could. But I mean, wouldn't that go into just a general question of like, how do we define borders, right? And the recognition got, of it. So sorry to interrupt. You guys see the second picture? Yeah. Yep. That's the original mandate. You know, the dark is Israeli and then the, the what is it? The yellow areas is basically uh, Palestinian. So you originally had that. But before that was formally established, you had a lot of struggles between Israeli paramilitaries and the Palestinian populations. And that's, you know, the result of the Nakba. And then through that struggle during the founding, you basically had the 67 border. Nakba was where they just drove out all these Palestinians from their lands and shoved them down to, into... Yes. Into so Gaza. there is a founding myth in, you know, the Israeli founding myth was, uh, what is it, was um, that, you know, the Palestinians just kind of left, right? And you have, you know, new historians... Uh, what, what is called new historians. The, one of the most prominent is Benny Morris. And, you know, using Israeli archival sources is like, no, you know, you had basically, you know, Israeli atrocities and it, you know, scared the, scared the bejesus out of uh, the Palestinians. And a lot of Palestinians in those yellow parts that you see kind of left, fled for their lives, 700,000. And then that's how the Israelis kind of moved in. Wow. Yeah, so I think another thing that's kind of interesting um, that that like um, a lot of people on Twitter is talking about, um, you know, when Israel is doing the bombing and they're telling people to evacuate, um, and if they were to go to boarding countries, and you know, it uh, creates a situation like the right of return um, if somebody have left a certain area for, you know, uh, a certain duration. You know, are they refugees or will they become um, residents of neighboring countries? And do they have the right to come back and reclaim the land? Right. So it has this dynamic of like how, you know, it, it's like a loose, loose situation for Palestines if they were to, um, you know, flee for their lives. But then progressively they're losing land because the right of return is no longer there. So that's kind of, you know, an interesting uh, political aim that you could see Israel taking for doing what it's doing. Yeah, look, I got to say that um, I've never really been that comfortable talking about Israel because, you know, this has obviously a direct connection to World War II and the Holocaust and these things that are... Um, you know, obviously very sensitive topics, especially in America. And, you know, I, I'm not Jewish. I'm not European. It's not really my business, so I don't really say much about it. And I, to be honest, I never really paid attention to it. And, um, you know, I have Jewish friends. I don't talk to them about this stuff. I don't really care. Whenever they talk about Israel, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm not, I'm not delving into that. You know, it's a hornet's nest. But yeah, I, I think it's by design. I remember in high school and I went to Fort Lee High School. Oh, in Jersey. In Jersey, yes. Yeah, okay. And uh and basically I remember raising some type of objection about what Israel's doing to Palestine and this Jewish kid just flipped out, you know, totally shut me down. And, you know, it, it's a good lesson. And like, you know, the class was silent. You know, pr professor kind of took the Jewish kid's side. You know, it is one of those things. It's like, um, what is it that, you know, America firmly clings to, which is that we will firmly support the side of Israel. You know, hell, 
you know, whether, you know, whatever Israel does. And I'll give you another example. There's uh, John Mearsheimer and uh, Stephen Walt. They published a book in the 2000s called The Israel Lobby. And they were already well-established tenured figures, uh, tenured professors. And they just got excoriated with the accusation of anti-Semitism, even though they made it very clear in the book, you know, look, we're talking about an Israeli lobby. It's not a Jewish lobby. It's an Israeli lobby. And they basically lobby. It's not a conspiracy. It's just how American, you know, politics and how basically, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and how America domestic politics and America lobbying politics works in such a way that produces these policy outcomes. You know, and people just excoriated them for anti-Semitism. So there is that. And I think, you know, whether by design or not, it does limit the dialogue about what Israel is doing and, you know, the role that Israel has in American foreign policy. And one has to be very, very careful because the, you know, because of what happened in the Holocaust, you know. Well, yeah, no, I, yeah, exactly. I think that's absolutely the, what's going on. And we all know about how powerful the Israel lobby and how, you know, even very vocal opponents of it eventually are, you know, see the light as to the wisdom of speaking up against this. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, you'll and, get skewered. And, you know, if I can add an aside, I don't, I also think in the United States, we don't do a very good job in the Holocaust education in that part. I mean, we could get into it if you want, but, you know, yes, we know about, you know, 6 million Jews, but we don't really know, you know, it's not really taught the origins of basically how it comes to be. And I'll give you an example. If I say Anne Frank, everyone knows what that, the name, right? Yeah, of course. Yes. Okay. Vanze conference. Yeah. Nope. Know? No idea. Right. Never heard. Never heard. What about you, Sam Long? No, I do not. And I can guarantee you most of, you know, Jewish, most basically Jewish kids probably have not heard of it. Wannsee Conference was the conference in Nazi Germany. And Wannsee was a suburb, a Jewish suburb that the Germans kind of, you know, kicked out all the Jewish residents and basically appropriated that it, it was in that it was in that conference in 41 where they determined to enact the final solution. And this is what I mean. We don't do a good job. In teaching about this and you know Anne frank yeah human spirit and all that you know the resilience of human spirit but she you know her diaries are not about camp life right it wasn't really about you know it's tangentially related but something as important and central to understanding the holocaust like the vonze conference americans don't know about so we do an incredibly poor job even teaching about this stuff how okay this is a question that will get anyone canceled if they ask which is why people who are under the radar like us we're in a great position to ask it because what does it matter <laughs> we're just we're just doing this shit nobody cares no one's paying attention right how similar in a way is because this just strikes me is that israel you know when you said that there's those possible four possible solutions and it seems like they're choosing the fourth which, which is an actual ethnic cleansing slash genocide that sounds to me like a final solution to the palestinian problem in israel how similar do you think are there are there parallels between the thinking that goes into the the idea of either driving every single last palestinian out of the you know what what they want to 
they want Israel to be and just maybe just make them into Egypt's problem and anyone who doesn't go is just going to get killed. And that seems like the actual plan right now. I mean, that that's not reading between the tea leaves or reading between the lines. That's what the Israeli government, that's what the IDF generals are all saying is the plan. And in fact, they seem to be executing it. Is this... Well, is there are there parallels there? Because it, it seems to me that there that there are, and we're talking about a similar scale. We're talking about two point three million, two point two million people. You know, just in Gaza, there's uh, quite a few million people in the West Bank. So in Gaza, there's just two point something million. And right, I, I Gaza, to go yeah. back, you know, maybe tie back to you know when you said the theory about attacking Iran, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's well. Look, this is my conspiracy theory, and this is my theory. I don't think it's so much about attacking Iran as what a war, regional war with Iran would entail. You know, your Twitter handle, how does it sound? Uh, what, you know, in Latin, it means, what is it? The laws are silent in war, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's that old adage, and all, all is fair in love and war, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What becomes impermissible becomes quite permissible in war. So what sounds impermissible, basically the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in a war that basically becomes permissible. You get people, you get the populace scared. You basically have all of these crises and conflict. And remember the Nakba itself came out of a struggle where the struggle was between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And it was, you know, a violent event and comes out of that. So that's my theory about it. Not so much going after Iran, but in going after Iran, you get the conditions of crises in which this becomes permissible. Though, 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 lest we forget, there's there's the other side of this, which is that maybe we, the United States, there's a powerful neocon contingent that wants a war with Iran and has wanted one for a long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, during, um, what was it? Um, I think I t- wrote this in uh, Twitter before, but, uh, you know, you know, in the Bush administration, uh, what was the slogan, right? If Iraq went well and they didn't have a shit show in Iraq, they would have went into Iran. And the slogan within the Bush administration was, boys go to Baghdad, real men go to Tehran. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was the wet dream. And in fact, the Israelis only went along with the Americans going into Iraq because there was an understanding, at least during the war on terror, that once this is successful, we're going to go straight into Iran. Yeah, you know, it's so funny how in America the, you know, the the media really pushes this narrative of of policy incoherence and the fog of, you know, post 9/11 and the random it I think a lot of Americans really can't point out like why did we invade Iraq and Afghanistan? Why did we do it? And I think the answer is pretty clear if you look on a map that's the west flank and the east flank of Iran. We 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 were surrounding them. Am I am I wrong in thinking that this was really you know a way to surround Iran and install U.S. friendly regimes you know right on the on both sides of the border of Iran and then you know start cl- closing in on on Iran and uh, is 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 Iran you know wh- why the special hatred and hard on for Iran and and you know they're always lumping Russia, Iran and China into this axis of evil whereas if you hear someone like Vladimir Putin talk about it 
he has a very different view, and he says that Iran, Russia, and China are some of the last remaining truly sovereign countries that are not just getting folded into um, this, quote, U.S.-led international rules-based order, or whatever you want to call it, um, but that are sort of holding on to their vision of the world and not really assimilating into the U.S. vision. And is that, is it really the U.S. that is, is therefore, well, I guess you already answered that, but like, it seems like that's what we want to do. We want to eliminate these guys because they don't listen to us. They're, they're not, I mean, and Iran is kind of alone, right, in the Arab world for having been, I guess, ever since the 78 revolution, totally against the idea of Israel, totally against the idea of a two-state solution, totally against the uh, the existence of an, uh, of a Jewish state in um, uh, in the Arab world, what they consider the Arab world, I guess. I don't know if I'm being a little bit too reductive here, but... So, you know, again, Middle East is not my area of expertise. So in the 90s, after the first Gulf War, America basically started a policy, what is called dual containment, because we saw, and this was for the sake of Israel, and the, the term dual containment is just, we will both contain and, you know, limit the growth of both Iraq and Iran, even though Iraq and Iran, absolute, you know, the Saddam regime, the Ba'athist regime in Iraq absolutely hated the Iranian regime, rather than saying, you know, this is from purely a realist politics standpoint, you, you play off one another this way. The Americans say, no, we're going to be fully committed to containing both of these countries and maintaining an antagonistic position with both of them. I think to the question of why, you know, America went in in September 11, I think that is tied to the ideological disposition of the United States in the post, post-World War II uh, post-World War II, which is that America has got to maintain a dominant position militarily in every region of the world, lest it comes into chaos or be part of the Soviet influence. So we will constantly have to be there and we have to be the most important, the primary power in each region of the world. And in going into Iraq and Iran, we're just reasserting that dominance. That has so what? obviously written all over it that that's actually going to be the seed of our own destruction. Yeah, it's I mean, such but, an insane idea. But but that has been kind of what the U.S. Yes. Uh, viewpoint is, right? Like from from the standpoint of post World War II, where like it, it saw the destruction of World War II and saw how it became chaotic. So it it views itself as necessary to. Uh, quote unquote, maintain a global peace in that manner um, and saw that it has ability to do that and why it reshaped Europe the way it did. Um, and, and then also when you look at, um, you know, for it to try to maintain and kind of like the U.S. kind of got drunk on power when the Soviet Union came down, right? They start to realize, hey, maybe we are this great uh uh, peace uh, country, and we feel the uh, necessity to go all around the world um, to contain and act as that policeman. But, you know, like you see what happened with 
um, how the way it approaches things that it's never done in a manner that is uh, peaceful. Um, and it has not allowed any type of um, country to kind of evolve and uh, become self-governing. You know, it doesn't allow countries to naturally evolve into a peaceful country, but it must stick to a particular dogma of saying that it must be a democracy, even if a country has risen in a peaceful manner, right? Just as you look at China, um, and that's a threat, um, that if there's a model that has risen peacefully um, and, and, you know, and it hasn't done anything wrong and it creates situation that stabilizes a region, um, because it's so fixated on that hegemony that it feels the necessity to maintain it. Um, and so it's never, you know, been about the, the idea of creating peace and harmony as they may project it post-World War II. So could I, so it sounds insane to us now, teen, right? That, you know, America's got to dominate everywhere, but you have to remember after the second world war, America had about 50% of the world's industrial capacity, about 80% of the world's investment capital. You know, when those conditions are there, you know, dominance of the world is really not that strange. At least. No, but that's, yeah, no, I agree with that, but that's, that is, you know, it's like the ring of power guys, right? Is it not? I mean, isn't this like, we just, we just couldn't like go, like, I mean, clearly that's not the case anymore. And you're the, absolutely right. It's not the case. And the problem we can't adapt. We not just we can't adapt, we created the various social, political institutions to fight the Second World War and the Cold War, but those institutions were never reformed when the Cold War ended. Mm. So we just basically go on and on. And you know, you looking know, for the same problem. Like we're looking for it's almost like we're looking for another World War Two so that our institutions can be functional and relevant again or something. I yeah, mean, we're looking for another World War II. We're looking for, you know, another crusade. And this, you know, as I, I once said to someone, and this is part my my research and looking at the military-industrial complex, you know, can we really say that the Cold War is over when the, you know, when the social political institutions in the United States never dismantled after at the end of the Cold War? They were never dismantled. You know, you mean like NATO <laughs> and the, well, I mean, uh, NATO, the alliance system. Yeah. Yes. But also the, you know, the military production apparatuses, right. you know, the national security state, you know, the CIA, the Air Force, all these things that were created during this, you know, the second Cold War to fight, this, to confront the Soviets, to contain the Soviets and to fight Nazi Germany, all of these things. But none of these institutions basically disappeared. And, you know, there is that accusation that China always says about the United States. And there is a huge a, a kernel of truth to it, which is that America is has that Cold War mindset and Cold War thinking. Well, of course it has that. The institutions are all still there. It hasn't been dismantled. Think about the '90s. We talk about the '90s as being idyllic, and you know, America's on top, rah rah, right? If America was smart, it sh that time period in the '90s should have been the time of radical political and socioeconomic transformations because the institutions to fight the Cold War, they're not useful anymore. But we didn't do that. We just let them continue on. 
and we let them find new purposes, whether it's uh, responsibility to protect, going into Serbia, humanitarian interventions, and then the Great War on Terror, and now all of a sudden, up oh, in the 2010s, China, a great power competition. Guys, no, but I that's feel the thing, like... Right? Like, like oh, if, go ahead, go ahead, if a country... Yeah, so if a country has that power and saw that that is their source in which um, allowed them to defeat the Soviet Union and become a unipolar, like why would it um, let go of that power, right? It's like it doesn't make sense from a, uh, a political power standpoint. It wants to maintain that. Um, and I think that that's part of the, you know, non-forward thinking and and goes against the philosophy that I think that uh, so much of America has been hypnotized by, that we're this great democracy, you know, like that. But, you know, it, it's not, right? It, it's all about power. Um, and if we truly are this great democracy and this country that is meant to be hope for everybody else, then I completely agree that at that point, we would dismantle and set up a you know a system where it's about how do we bring about uplifting other parts of the world into a state where you know they're um, they're economically stable and people want to uh, remain in their homeland and have stability you know so but you know with that with that military power that we gain uh, post World War II and then the fall of the Soviet Union it's like that's that's part of the uh, the nature of power that once you have that, like, how do you let go of it? Um, which I don't think the U.S. can. And that's the uh, the problem that we run into right now. Guys, I, I have to say, I, I never really appreciated the scale or, or nature of the problem until the Chinese became the sort of primary an obsessive target of the of the United States and i remember just feeling that especially and, and in fact i started getting these feelings pre covid and covid sent this into over overdrive but you know i i already sensed this and then i i was actually in china in 2019 late 2019 just overwhelmed by this feeling of like, which I'd never really felt before of like, this is such a peaceful place. The people here are so peaceful. I am not the most familiar with China. This was the, my only third time in the country. And I was, and, and I was visiting, you know, my wife's family and stuff. And, you know, every day is just such a, it, you know, it's just like we go out, we have a family meal, you know, we walk like, you you know, we walk along the Pearl River at night and there's grannies, there's all these dancing groups and it's such a peaceful country. It's a peaceful society. And I'm like, and they want to destroy this and they want and they're they won't stop calling this evil. What is going like this is the this is when I really started to have this very strange experience of like, why is why are Americans or why is America hell-bent on lying when they you know it's you're free to come to this country you're free to travel here like me I'm on I'm just on an American passport see for yourself and 
it was just nonstop lies for years. And I just, it completely changed me as a person. And I started to realize, like, they don't care about the truth. They will call you, look, I I mean, they've called Chinese people genociders and, you know, whatever for so many years that now that I'm seeing them do it again to the Palestinians and Hamas and stuff, I'm like, I don't really believe you guys. This is bullshit. Yeah, so I think the so I think the problem that what China um, uh, provides is that it really shatters the message that the U.S. tried to portray, right? Because it it doesn't the data, the events of history doesn't fit the narrative that they're trying to push, um, and I think especially when you given how China came about in the last 40 years of economic rise without the, the same model that Western nation has uh, brought about their economic rise through uh, colonialism, imperialism. And I think that that is the problem that the U.S. has is how do they create a message and the image that fits that and China doesn't. Um, and then so obviously they have to go back to the good old, you know, um, uh, Cold War message of saying, well, it's a communist country, you know, like that. It goes against everything that is a democracy to try to make uh, China as this image, as this threat. Um, but if if they were to try to apply the same thing, you could see like trying to apply this evil entity that is Russia. Like they could go and say, well, you know, they took this military action, they did this, they did that, and that there will be, you know, a, a little bit of truth associated uh, with that. But with the claim when it comes to China, they can't get it to stick because China has not done that. And then China has not closed off its society, you know, to, to allow people, just as you say, to come and visit and experience and see that, right? And in very much, they're, you know, openly expressing that um, to, to say, you know, well, you know, if you really think that that's who we are, then come and visit and see for yourself, you know, so. But but, but is it because China, I guess where I'm, I'm coming out on this is that it's not that China is, um, I don't think the difference is that China is a, a society that doesn't meet those, um, that, that, that sort of subverts those notions but it's that in a way like china's too powerful to and too big um to to completely obscure with these lies so i guess what i'm saying is when they say these things about palestinians i'm like i I just figured that it's a lie and it's just as inapplicable to palestinians as it is to chinese the only difference is that palestinians don't really have an easy way to fight back though now i think the arab world you know has more soft power and you know i can watch al jazeera instead of u.s media and they they give a very different perspective and is that what it is do you know what i mean like is it a a matter of power well i think it's it's a matter of controlling the message as well right where like you see china Uh, And I think that that's where, like, the parity of technology in which China has to counter the West. And I think part of that technology is the messaging system. And I think that in the Middle East, it has been for so long um, infighting. And I think that with China, uh, 
looking at it from the standpoint, hey, if if they're able to unite uh, the Middle East, at least, you know, to have a common focus and not a common distraction that for them to be able to have a more singular voice against uh, a lot of the messaging that the West is putting out, um, that they may be able to um, to counter that. And I think that uh, perhaps right now the West is seeing that and how do they go about in disrupting that unity that it may be creating. Um, sorry, Mike, uh, go ahead. So, you know, maybe it's a bit selfish for me to say, but another one of my reactions initial reactions I was telling a friend when I saw what was happening in Palestine and basically what the West was enabling Israel to do. I said to a friend, you know, I'm very happy that China has hundreds of nuclear warheads and a state of the art PLA, because if the West wants to try this, the casualty rates will be one on one, you know, in the single digits between. And that is not, you know, it really is a huge deterrent to basically the West's design on China. And, you know, if you read history, 19th century, when China was incredibly weak, you know, you, you had a lot of, you know, the stuff that the Palestinians suffered. It kind of mirrors, I think, a lot of the things that the Chinese have went through. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why you also, if I could go off on a tangent, that you see China sympathizing overwhelmingly, at least, with the Palestinian cause. And not with the Israelis. Are you talking about the government or, or just like sort of people on average people? Internet you know, people and, yeah. know about the century, you know, people know about the century. Uh, we translate century of humiliation, but it's more century of shame, right? The shame that you can't really protect and defend the country and all the things. One sec. Uh, sorry, I'm just gonna. And, I just paused it, so it's fine. Go ahead. Okay. And um, the other thing, oh, what was I going to, the other thing, I think, you know, when we're talking about the sinophobia, I think it's actually even much simpler. It's because we can use sinophobia to avoid the, to avoid accountability for the elites. Who fucked up the United States? Who was it? It was the oh, elites. Yeah. That's totally right. completely yeah, fucked yeah, it up. That's totally right. Yep. You know, people say, oh, China took the jobs. Well, the elites got a massive amount of payday. What do they do with the what, what do they do with the payday? They didn't reinvest it in the US economy. They basically took it all for themselves and get more tax cuts. And China's far away. They can't really fight back and say anything and they speak they're, they're, like, they're blaming you know, China even for the um, fentanyl crisis now. Yeah, they're blaming China and yet we basically let the Sacklers walk free, you know, all around. That's exactly you know, the, what it is. They want to avoid blame and they also want to avoid response future responsibility. They're like there's nothing we can do. Talk to the Chinese. I mean, it's really sad yeah. in a way. It's very impotent of a, yeah. you know, it's a very impotent view to be like, we can't do anything. We have to lobby the Chinese to stop hooking our people on drugs. You know, I'm like. Or or it's the China's fault that you lost your job. Well, you could have basically enacted a social, basically a social, uh, a social uh, reform program. You could have enacted education investments to retool the American economy. Did we do any of that? No, we didn't. The United States basically just pocketed those profits. So you want to avoid complete accountability for the elites, and you blame China. And when you look at the xenophobic pro propaganda, you know, it mirrors a lot with basically the anti-Semitic propaganda, right? They are responsible for the ills of modern America. 
just like the Jews were responsible for the ills of modern Germany or modern Europe. Yeah, but I think that that's part of the problem, right, that we're seeing in the U.S. is that lack of responsibility and accountability for, um, you know, the ills that the U.S. is in the state that it is. And I think that part of the, uh, the also problem is that, like, the general public feel in a state of helplessness, right, that we can't make any changes because no matter how much we protest, nothing results. Um, and, and this is something that, like, a team that you talk about in the Twitter space saying that, like, look, the American people is just tired. They're just tired and overworked and feel like they can't do anything. And even if they do, nothing changes. And then when you look at how the way uh, the government actually get things changed is to lobbying. Imagine that, that like for, for the government to respond to its people, that we have to um, somehow create some kind of lobby group to pay extra money to the government to hear the public's voice. Like what type of uh, uh, country and government is that? How, how is it that we buy into that that's a legitimate form of representation um, for the people that are on the ground that are suffering and not having any type of response and we have no mechanism of making things correct, you know? So, and, and I think that that's what they're, you know, they're constantly, uh, so like when you talk about the, the U.S. government, you talk about like the foreign policy and what I always refer, refer to is that they're always, uh, they're, they're, con- they're right now using the last century model to fit into this current century of how to handle uh, foreign policy. And the same way that I see it domestically, because it has always um, uh, othering, uh, using othering of another group to excuse away from their responsibility. You look at in the 50s, 60s, where you have the civil rights, you know, like that, it's always somebody else to blame. Um, you know, uh, when you have the war on drugs, it's somebody else to blame. When you have loss of jobs, it's somebody else to blame. You know, like that. It's constantly finding somebody else to blame as opposed to understanding what is the stru- uh, structural problem and fixing it. And it, it's like this country, I feel like, is so lost in that sense where. The citizens are not aware of this, and the citizens have no means of correcting the system. And yet here's this system that it it promotes saying that is the most free and best system, but yet you look at how it functions, it does not respond uh, to the people beneath. Like the message is comes from above and try to convince the people uh, below, um, and yet, you have a system that has an approval rating that can't crack 50%, you know, like that. You look at the uh, Congress, it's like 20%. Like, how is that a system that you can go and say is a good system that is responsive to the needs of its people? Um, and I think that that's the mythology that that uh, the American has been bought into and sold, um, and they try to apply that same logic into foreign policy that I think a lot of people are starting to waking up and see that and, um, you know, and, you know, you know, try not to be black pill, but I feel like for things to really change, it really does require 
some kind of like violent uh, protests for the above to recognize that their position is unstable. And in many ways, that's how so many government uh, gets uh, changed is through that violent revolution. Um, and it feels like the people in power are just waiting for that to occur and that they're not taking any actions to resolve the social uh, economic um, instability or you know extremes that's happening in the U.S. I think if there's any uh, realistic, unfortunately, I think there, if there's any realistic potential for an, an actual violent insurrection, it's going to be disorganized. It's not going to be an organized violent rebellion with a political goal and, and a cause and an idea of what's to replace what, what is destroyed. It's just going to be fucking chaos. And I think it's already started to an extent. Um, we, we got a taste of it, I think, in 2020, where there was ostensibly some idea of organization. But let's face it, I know it's not PC to say, but those 2020, those were, those were fucking riots. You know, they were, they were just burning shit down. And maybe, maybe they had righteous anger. Maybe their anger was justified to an extent, but there was no larger project. You know, they were just burning shit down. I think that that's how it's always going to start, right? Because there's no sense of uh, community. There's no sense of unity to go and say, this is what needs to be fixed. It's just people are just tired of the status quo and that, you know, everybody has all these differing opinions how to approach it. And you have all these various fractions that will yeah. um, evolve out of it. So I think what you're, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, teen. But tell me if I'm right in my in my attempt to interpret what you're saying. You're basically pessimistic in the sense because you see a distinction between, let's say, the peasant rebellions that happen all throughout Europe before the French Revolution and the French Revolution. And the French Revolution was organized and actually changed the structure of society and politics. Whereas the peasant rebellions, the peasants got very uppity. But you know, once the rebellion the fire of the rebellion happens and, and then it eventually dies down. Things just kind of go back to still the same. I think so. I think though, though I do think that there, I don't know if things are just going to go back to the same. I think that, that maybe what I'm trying to say is that the left in America should probably give up on the idea of having any sort of like or mass organized movement. I just don't think it's going to happen. I do think, though, that there can be um, a somewhat self-reinforcing feedback loop of disobedience that might re redraw the might redraw the um, conditions of our of our class, dis you know, of our, of our class distinctions. That, um, for example, I think that there's an outbreak of just sort of general worker like. I don't know what to call it, but there, first of all, there's an outbreak of union activity, which is good. But the union activity is, is, is almost just, ang it's just like backlash activity. Like they're not even really looking, they're reacting, they're reacting and they're, they're trying to say, fuck you. They're trying to hurt the employer more than they are trying to help themselves. And I think in a way that might be the way forward is for people to lose hope <laughs> in a way. And, and that's why I'm not, I, I am not a, 
I don't think the cult of positivity in America is a good thing. I think in some way you do need to lose hope and just be like, fuck it. I have no, this is what happened in Gaza. They lost hope. This is why things got pushed to where it is, is because they've tried every other avenue and nothing fucking worked. And, you know, as, as, as horrifying as what happened was, uh, you know, they were left with no other choice. And now at least things are happening and the world is finally paying attention. And they're like, something has to be done. And I think that's where we stand now, moving back to the original topic of Gaza is like, as an American, I think the, I think the first thing Americans need to do, in my opinion, is just totally disregard the taboo that's been erected around this topic. Don't let people bully you out of it and call you anti-Semitic for opposing anything Israel does. And just say, I don't care. What what do I care? I'm an American. I don't, what do I care what you say about, you know, I maybe there's white people who still carry a lot of guilt and this weird complex about what happened in World War II. But uh, personally, as a Chinese person, I, I'm like, yeah, I got nothing to do with that. So I'm not really cowed by these things. And also I've been called, a, I, Chinese people have been called genociders for the past five, six years, nonstop. By the U.S. government, so oh, we've been called genociders, agents, yeah, all those various things, you know. And even before the xenophobic things get out of hand, we eat dogs, we, yeah, you know, all this type of stuff. Yeah, so it's kind of like, all right, save it, okay? I'm Chinese. I've already, you've already considered me a fucking Nazi. So what do I care, right? And I have to say that as an American, we really should consider that the gravity of what we're about to underwrite, endorse, and perhaps partake in, which is nothing short of like another Holocaust level event. And I think one thing that we have to consider is that a full 25% of the global population is Muslim. So I, I think Americans need to wake up to the fact that we, we can't just think of of Arabs and Muslims as a small minority, like we do in this country, they're a huge contingent of the earth and they will be writing the history along with a lot of non-Westerners. They will be writing the history of this time. And this is guys, a, a the genocide of 2 million people on fucking live television and TikTok and social media and everything in high definition video you don't want to be part of that. I mean, not only do we want to be not be part of that, we should be trying to stop this. Um, I, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, this, this is a point you know, of fucking no return, guys. I mean, you know, like, and and I would like to emphasize, America actually does have the power. Oh yeah, basically put its foot down on yes. the Israelis. And if you don't believe me? Look at the middle of the two thousands. The Israelis were selling advanced tech. To the Chinese, the Americans were not happy. The Israelis, you know, under Ariel Sharon, was like, ah, screw you. What do we care? And the Americans said, we're going to drop a bunch of these sanctions. And if you don't back off from this, and these are our actual interests, we're going to sanction you. And guess what? The Israelis backed off. And as you were saying, you know, the Americans do have, you know, we can't control Israeli policies. Well, let me rephrase. That's contradictory. You know, we're not Israeli citizens. We can't dictate what Israel does. But we can control what they do in the sense that we are sending a massive, massive amount of aid. You know, and, you know, as an American or as a Canadian, 
the very minimum is, well, you know, these unconditional support has got to stop. But I feel like it's, I feel like it's not. And again, like if I were to look at it long term from the Israel's interest, the actions that is happening right now, it's not good for its long term interests. You know, like why would Israel want to do what it's doing? And like we've kind of forgotten how extreme Netanyahu really is. Right. Even when his first time around uh, leading a government, like his views are very extreme. But, but yet I, here he is back at the state, you know, at the head of the state again. But can I suggest something on those lines? I saw Brett Stevens write an article in the New York Times. I think it was Brett Stevens called What Would Destroying Gaza Accomplish? Meaning on balance, would it be good or bad to destroy Gaza? And he says on balance, it's bad, so we shouldn't do it. And I thought what the fuck are you talking about? We are debating genocide. This is equivalent, I think, morally to saying, what good would the Holocaust do? On balance, would that be a good thing or a bad thing for German interests? I'm like, what the fuck are you... you, How how are we even debating this? There is no moral absolute here to to the idea that we should debate whether we should destroy a city of 2 million people whether or not they want to evacuate before the bombs fall is their issue. And whether they have a way out is their problem. But on this time, at this hour, we are going to level you with MOABs, bunker busters. All of you are dead. Two million fucking people. Um, you don't debate whether that is in the long-term interests of Israel or not. I mean, I, Samlang, I understand what you're saying. I think that it is worth questioning. Well, um, I, think, I think that that's what, what's happening, right? With the U.S. is like, you know, uh, so the, the U.S. allowed this to happen, but now it's recognizing, hold on, you know, in the pages of, of history, this is going to not look good. Um, from you the think US that's where they're at? I hope that's where they're at. Um, I mean, I, think that I hope that's, that's where Blinken's at. I hope that's where Biden's at going wait, shit, am I ready to go to hell? And am I ready to send America, you know, am I ready to entirely change the historical trajectory of America to an evil nation that that participated in genocide as the world watched? So I think from the U.S. standpoint that they they look at it, uh, I think from the U.S. standpoint, they were okay with the slow genociding process that was happening prior to this outbreak, because it was like, okay, it's, it, it's kind of like under the radar, nobody's recognizing it, that in the pages of history, it's going to be about Israel that, that has done that. But now Israel well, Even the is, other Arab states seem to be going along with it because they were like, hey, we're going to normalize relations exactly. with Israel. And, so everyone was, and, you know... The go- I mean, I, I think the governments of the Arab states are probably not exactly the best friends of the Palestinians either. It's the Arab people but, that are keeping them honest on this. But I think that that's part of the, the problem with a lot of, you know, when we talk about politics, right, with a lot of the um, Middle Eastern states is that they never establish the type of political power or military power for them to be able to have a united response. Um, and, and I think that that's where like China, you know, when they're talking about like buying your time, right. Um, do not, you know, uh, overplay your car when you don't have the power to do that. And, and I think that, uh, 
prior to that, the Middle East has been trying to respond, but they were such an uh, uh, underwhelming power to be able to have any effects. And I think that they start to recognize that. And how do they go about in gaining enough of a power to have a united response to be able to defend uh, themselves or the Palestinians in a you know in a proper manner, you know, to stand up for themselves. So I, so like right now, it's it, you know I feel like you know to blame it on them to to say that well they never you know stood up and defend the Palestinians. Um, I think it's a little uh, it, it's a little disingenuous in my standpoint where like they don't have the power to be able to defend them. Um, and, but, and unfortunately that's what's happening is that like the Palestinians is kind of the forgotten people because they're living under this oppression. And for the longest time, nobody, you know, care about the plight of its people. And I feel like, again, like what Hamas did is to really hatch it up, to bring it into the forefront of people's consciousness. Exactly. And, and. And they expected the type of response that Israel takes, you know, like that. And I think in part, the U.S. was not prepared for the type of response that Israel took. The U.S. was all along fine with, again, the slow genocide, you know, like that, because in the end, it won't be upon the U.S. It'll be upon Israel that's looked back. But obviously, you know, what is happening right now is, you know, for anybody who have any sense of humanity in them, you know, like, how can this possibly be good? How can, and then when you hear the heads of states of all these European countries um, that, you know, just blindly say we support Israel and that is just completely one-sided, it's just crazy because, again, like you say, you know, they're, they're, the, uh, the Arabs and Muslims are a quarter of the population that, you know, and, and again, like even the global south, right? Everybody in the global south are siding with, uh, the Palestinians that in the history, uh, in the pages of history, the West is going to look terrible because of uh, how the way they blindly support this. Um, and it, just the propaganda that goes into it. I mean, even like in sporting events, right? Like you look at, um, watch an NFL game. Uh, in the broadcast, they even, you know, explicitly saying, uh, oh, you know, we, we support Israel and, you know, and we, we hope people donate uh, for the cause of it. I mean, that's how crazy the propaganda that goes into it that portray um, this one-sidedness. But in reality, it's just like it, uh, the Palestinians has been uh, being uh, killed slowly for so long, you know, like that. that just, yeah, just, imagine just, living in that condition, right? This feels living like... This feels kind of like we've been palling around with um, a bad guy who has been committing sort of petty crimes here and maybe a robbery there or something. And we're on a, this criminal joyride with this guy. But now he's going to kill someone. And now you're going to be an accomplice to murder. And this this joyride has suddenly come to a very dark <laughs> moment. And we got to make up our mind you know, that's that's how I feel. I just I just I don't know what, whether I'm being overly dramatic here, but it's hard to be overly dramatic in terms of the fate of these people in Gaza, because it's just so many people and the Israelis are just so 
they're just such fucking Nazis when it comes to this. I can't. I don't know what else to say. They're just openly genocidal, and what? we are being going to be dragged to hell uh, if we go along with this. I I just think that the ba- I, I guess what I'm saying is, for me personally as a Chinese person, the past several years I've completely lost my shyness around this because I'm like, well, I'm a Nazi anyway because I'm Chinese, so what do I care? But number two is like, as an American now, I think people need to lose their shyness around this because it's just like, do you really want a, the kind of event that not only is it going to be written in the history books, this is like a biblical level event, right? For This is the kind of thing that would make it into the Bible if it was still being written. And do you really want to... Do you, <laughs> is that really the role you want to play? Are you ready for that? Are you, you know, like, is your soul ready for that? And I think this is going to be, if we do this, it, it, to me, it spells the end of America. I mean, I mean, as we know it, it we, and we will cross that. We're going to cross the Rubicon here and become just, just a full blown evil country after this point. Maybe we won't necessarily recognize that about ourselves at first, but that is how the world will see us is my, at least the, part of the world that will write the history of the future. They, they, they were done for it's. So yeah. I, I don't want to say that. I think the righteous indignation that you have teen is absolutely correct in looking at the Palestine issue and what's currently happening in Israel and Palestine. But I just kind of want to maybe bring us back down to earth a bit in the sense that, you know, the U S is, you know, in, in its founding, slavery, the genocide of Native Americans, has always been basically sort of like this. I think that's the first point. And I think the second point I would like, you know, I would highlight is even if we resolve the Israel-Palestine issue, it's not like all the problems in the Middle East will be resolved. Like, there's still going to be contradictions that no, we have. I agree with that, it's, but I'm just saying there are times in history, for with, when it, with respect to America's current situation, right? Current, mm-hmm. I think that America still has, it's still salvageable. The situation is still salvageable. Yes, for example, the country was founded on slavery. Yes, we continue to be uh, a segregated and deeply racist society. But um, it's not as if we continue to be a slaving society. It's not as if we didn't abolish it. It's not as if we didn't completely reform the United States around that issue. And because of that, I think the United States was able to move forward from that because we actually addressed it. Um, and not in a small way, in a mm-hmm. fundamentally reshaped, from my, I'm a lawyer, we completely reshaped the constitutional substructure of the United States around slavery. And said, we fought a civil war over it that killed, you know. We fought a civil war and then we built basically at a second framing and made an entirely new country Mm -hmm. um, from the ground up. And and maybe that's not fully recognized, but with the 14th Amendment and stuff, the country was completely remade and we're a much more centralized, federalized country than we were prior, right? Uh, The notion between the southern slavings and those gone, right? so I do, yes, I do feel like I'm being dramatic here, but on the other hand, I do feel this is 
history does come down to specific points in time. It's not just the slow roll of an accumulation of, you know, we have done a lot of terrible things. And, you know, I mean, obviously the invasion of Iraq, like, is this going to be worse than that? I don't, I mean, probably in body count, not necessarily, but. I think if you're talking about maybe the consequence, it becomes a regional war. It absolutely could become worse than that. But I think this is an app. But here's it's just one of those things where the setup of this is an absolute. It's a it's a moral test. That's what this is. It's a moral test. Like all the tests are there and the entire world is watching. And it, it is the question is so clearly framed and we should so obviously recognize it that if we fail this test, I feel like. There will no. There's not going to be a second chance in terms of think... the perception of the United States. I don't think we come back from this if we stand by and protect, give the Israelis cover to do this in the UN militarily by you know protecting them on their on their on their northern flanks. But do you and... think that part part of this dramatic feeling that you have is also a consequence of? Um, the uh, downfall of the U.S. right now as that hegemony. You get what I'm saying? Where, like, the, you know, when they say in international community, you know, like how, if we look at true international community as population-wise, the rest of the world disagrees with the U.S. and disagrees with what Israel is doing. So is part of the feeling that we have um, and the sympathy that we have toward the Palestines has something to do with that, right? Where like we're losing our, uh, you know, moral uh, supremacy in, in, in that way. But in many ways, like, are we just losing it now or have we always lost it, right? Because you look at, like, you look at what happened in Iraq, right? Like Iraq is pretty bad because... We went in there with absolutely certainty that it was made up lies and we kill millions of Iraqis and we suffer no consequences for that, right? We don't feel the same in terms of in the pages of history that we will be looked upon as being this evil thing, you know, like that. But currently we feel that way. But 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 uh, but the but the, the question I guess I'm dealing. I'm thinking of this more subjectively. Where what I'm saying is okay, and maybe I framed this incorrectly. What I should say is I do think, like in a way, we have to consider, like, that the country itself has a soul, and our souls are on the line. I, you know, I, I know this sounds really weird, guys. This sounds weird. No, no, I don't think it's weird. And maybe I'm putting. I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth. I think there's, you know, for me, there, you know, and we could see kind of the science. Uh, what was that uh, guy, Hunka, in the Canadian yes. Parliament? Yes. Yes. There was, you know, we are taught when we were young. And, you know, I grew up in Canada, but, you know, kind of like America to a certain extent, not as arrogant. You know, we were taught Nazis were bad. Never again, right? Don't venerate Nazis. And in the past week or two, we have basically broke almost every single thing we have been taught as a kid about the proper what is right and what is wrong in our own country. 
I think yes. the indignation comes from that and yes. the utter disgust, I think, in our own societies, I and, think, comes from in that. A in the sense in a, of it's a shock. I'm shocked. Yeah. At the, you know, and I, I know this sounds weird, but I do think that at some cosmic level, the hunk of thing was like, uh, like something was the universe, okay, was trying to send a signal to us to be like, please look at yourself right now. You guys are, I know this is Ottawa, but same deal. Please look at what you're becoming. You are saluting a Nazi. And then after that came out, we started defending him. Yeah. And there, we started seeing things like, you know, it's not that complicated. I mean, it is more complicated oh, than it's, that. Uh, You've got to look at him, him joining his nuance. Right. And then, you know, what Hamas did, oh, we got to condemn right. that. And all the dead, all the dead Gazans, they got to use their dying breath to condemn Hamas, yeah. as the Indian said. And, you know, when I saw that article, <laughs> well, when I'm seeing all these debates over whether the destruction of Gaza is, uh, is the right policy or not, I'm just like, okay. We don't like. Do you realize that that means then there's no bottom for us? If that's on and, the table, you know, they they sound like the Germans in '41. They sound like the Germans saying, mm, "Do we destroy the Warsaw Ghetto? Right. Mm, what do we do with the surplus Jewish yeah. population?" And the people and, who are engaging in good faith in that debate are just as bad because they're like, they are open to the idea. They're just saying, on balance, it's bad policy. And I'm like, no, it is a moral absolute, guys. You don't, there are things that you, you can't consider genocide. You can't consider yeah. destroying 2 million fucking people, half of whom are children. Uh, you can't do that. Uh, I don't care what the policy considerations are, but nobody in the liberal establishment seems to recognize this. And if you bring it up, they call you a Nazi. It's we insane. basically are politicking in a sense, when we shouldn't, this is not something that's up to debate. It's a first principle. It's a first principle. You know, it's axiomatic. You don't no, do this. Yeah, no genocide, no ethnic cleansing. And yet we are treating it as if somehow it is a policy debate about, let's say, charter schools. And in a sense, I mean, um, you know, I, I would highly recommend you guys watch the movie, uh, the Wannsee Conference, the German one, the German one, which is basically they use a transcript and then they reenact all the lines. And ultimately, the Wannsee Conference, it's basically, well, we did want to put Jews in the ghettos, but that's constraining rail capacities and supplies. And we got to basically use all those rail capacities to you know, buttress our logistics in the Eastern Front because we're fighting the Russians crazy. now. Yeah. And you know, because of that, we got to fucking kill them because they're just overstraining our logistics capacity and fighting the Russians. This is why, you know, and it just... In a sense, that revulsion I think you're feeling is comes from that. It's like this is not a policy debate that we should be. You know, yeah, it, I, it's not a policy debate we should be yeah. having. It's and I yeah, and I don't need. We, and the sad part is, I don't need to be educated on the last 110 years of the history of the creation of the state of Israel to understand this. I right. people should be able to go into this with zero knowledge of the of the long saga between. Israeli settlers and the local populations, which are not only uh, Palestinian Muslims. There's Christians and Jews there. But we don't need to know that history to know that you don't do this. Yeah, so do this. let me ask you guys this, right? Um, 
Because so I completely agree in terms of that, you know, uh, genocide is uh, one thing that it doesn't require much to to go and say it's wrong, right? It, it shouldn't require anything to say that's wrong. But if you look at it from the actions, uh, the pages of history from the U.S., like what was happening in Vietnam, you know, like that. I mean, do people consider that in the U.S. at that time? that is equivalent to how uh, the U.S. policy is doing that and, you know, what result of it, you know, 30 years later after those actions, you know, do people start to lose interest and say that, okay, this is just another historical event or is this something much bigger than what all the previous uh, military uh, uh, actions that occur around the world? That's a fair question to ask, but again, I think that these moral questions, you know, it's one thing to ask about an event that has already happened, including what Hamas did. It, it's already happened versus an event that we are currently planning. There, there's just something particularly horrific about watching people sit around and plan something like this um, because it can be stopped by just the will of the people who are planning to do it to back off and realize that they're, they're not supposed to do it. The reaction to things that have already happened, it's like, okay, I mean, hopefully people learn from it, but it's, it's already happened. We, you know, the more important thing is the thing that's just, it is on, it's on the cusp of happening and we maintain, it is just insane to me when I read these things and we see the UN and we see all these international groups warning about a humanitarian crisis the media is going off about the potential for human suffering, the loss of, but none of this is an absolute. It all looks at this as if it's some sort of inevitability or some sort of, you know, the fact that Israel has to have a military reprisal that involves the large scale destruction of Gaza is taken without question. The only question is how are we going to handle the humanitarian fallout from this and i'm like what if you just don't do it uh that's not that's not a possibility you know um and and so what this leaves me thinking is that the united states is going to fail this test um and that's going to reveal some eventually that will reveal just like the vietnam war eventually revealed something about ourselves to us like this is going to be the same thing but it might be even worse because um I, I don't know, man. There's something about this and its ties to the Holocaust and the, 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 deliberate, the deliberate planning of it, the way it just absolutely echoes what was done in, uh, in, in Nazi Germany that I feel like, one, it corrupts your soul to the point where either you recognize what happens and it's ter- horrifying or... You, you get to the point, kind of like Japan is, where it's like, you will just never own up to it. You'll never be able to be honest ever again about your own history because it's just too horrifying for you to be realistic about. And so we are always going to be completely out of touch with the rest of the world because they see it a certain way and we absolutely refuse to see it that way. And that's just a really bad condition. That's not, you know, that's... I can't ex- exactly explain how that leads to, you know, just like really bad shit. But I just feel like something tells me that that is to be avoided at all costs. 
I mean, I, I get the unconscious feeling, you know, especially with the Hunka and the Palestinians. I think the revulsion for me, in a sense, is that we are actively picking barbarism as a default mode of thinking in the West. And we are actively, basically, you know, discarding all the things that we have been taught about what is right and what is wrong in our societies, all in for the pursuit of some geostrategic interest. And in a way, as you were saying, I think we basically stripping our souls and you know our very essence of who we are and becoming something incredibly monstrous. So I do get that sense. But I also think maybe... I, I know this is especially the case in the Canadian context. I'm not sure in the... I don't know. Maybe you can enlighten me on the American context. I think maybe it's a subconscious understanding of the limits or basically the contradictions of our own societies. I mean, especially in the case of Canada, you know, maybe this is an unconscious, you know, in the Canadian case, you heard about the, you guys know about the residential schools, right? Yeah. Yes. We basically put, you know, we, you know, forcibly recruit in Canada, basically, you know, enlisted kids, uh, indigenous kids, you know, as young as eight, and we put them into Catholic or Protestant schools and educate them, you know, as uh, the old saying, old saying, kill the Indian, save the child, right? And, you know, you had a lot of this agitation for to try to readdress this in Canada. If you look at basically statistics and, you know, about uh, indigenous populations, they are even worse than African-Americans in terms of both life expectancy, the amount of time in prison, drug abuse, and all of this, and all socioeconomic indicators indigenous populations in Canada, they have, they, you know, their outcomes, life expectancy, all things are even worse than African Americans in the United States. You have all of this agitation in Canada. Maybe, I'm not saying this is definitely the case, but it does feel like in the Canadian context, at least, uh, honoring the Nazi hunka and the unwavering support for Israel is a subconscious way we're telling, you know, the others in our society, especially the indigenous, the minorities, that there's a limit to what you can and what is respectable politics. And we will enforce that. That's horrifying. So like to me, I'm not saying this is the truth. It's just, it, it's a feeling that I get. I'm not saying this well, is, scary, I think it's a, scary, it's a very scary feeling. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, like with me, I feel it's very sad to see what's happening. And that in spite of all these um, sense of, morality that we feel um i look at history and look at policy and look at the people that are in position to make changes and i have no faith in them in making the right um humanity decisions just as in history that you know they've never done that right you know you look at vietnam they never done that you look at iraq they never done that so it's it's like we're seeing what is happening, and but yet the, the sense of reality is that for us as regular peoples, we have so low impact, if any, to change the direction, the course of history of what's happening or what is going to happen. And I think that that's the part that I feel is very sad about it because there's such a lack of hope and prospect that um, the people that we put in charge to make decisions will make the right decisions, even a decision 
so seemingly simple and straightforward as this being a moral decision of not genociding, just as you guys had, had talked about all of our upbringing, um, you know, in the West, how we recognize the idea of Nazism is bad or the idea of genocide is bad, that no matter what, that's such a simple line that we would never cross. But yet here we are, you know, like that. And I feel like um, the people in power, the plans that set in place does not change. And that no matter how much outrage that we have, it has so little uh, impact to that bigger plan of moving forward. Um, and I think that that's the sad part. And not to sound facetious or make light of the situation, but I can, I can almost feel like, you know what I think Biden is really thinking about this right now? I think he's thinking, oh man, like how are the Republicans going to react yes. and use this yep. to yep. before the twenty twenty four? You know election. why? Because he's a he is a president that is standing in a great moment. This is a great moment in history. That's what I think is going on. This is a great moment in history. Yeah, and, and he's, he's probably thinking about poll numbers. Yeah, he's not and, a great man. He is the he is the embodiment of mediocrity, and we need a great man right now who can do just ignore all of this bullshit about how you know if you don't stand behind netanyahu you hate jews completely ignoring jewish opinion which fucking hates netanyahu including in israel oh yeah that's the other thing that's you know that's um that's not been talked surprising, about which is you know you look at haretz uh, Haratz, yeah. uh, I don't know how to pronounce Haratz, it. Yeah, they're I mean, way to the left of anything, like way more rational than anything in the U.S. media for sure. Yeah, and you even have scholars like Benny Morris, and he is not a fan of Arabs or Palestinians, you know. And even he's saying, yeah, like you know, Israel is entering like an apartheid state, and Benny uh, and you know Netanyahu is a complete crook, even though I agree with some of his policies, and he's got to be stopped. Even right wingers have more honesty, some of them at least, in Israel, than what we're seeing in the West. Yeah, I, I totally so. agree. I think Biden is just thinking about the poll numbers for next year. And he doesn't understand that you can't take political capital to you with the grave, to the grave, that he doesn't understand the great moment. He doesn't understand, you know, the thing that a U.S. president could do here. Because the U.S. president doesn't need congressional approval to make military decisions about how this is going to move forward. It's all him. You know? He doesn't have to but listen feel... to those psychos in Congress. He's but the that's fucking the president. Not some fucking shitbag congressman. Who cares about yeah, that? Yeah, but you got to remember, he's uh, his whole life is working as a shitbag congressman. Yeah. yeah. And it's, but, you know, just... But that's the thing. is that, like, their their position is not, is not about a moral position, right? Like... They're just pure political animals, right? Looking it wasn't always at... like this. I, 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 no, I, I do believe that, that you know, as, as thin as the moral character of the United States has been through history, at least there was one. I think there was one. I, um, I do believe that there are moments in the U.S. Uh, history that there, there has been a lot of uh, that type of evaluation. But, man, for my lifetime, I don't sense anybody stepping up to a plate and making those type of decisions, 
I agree. No, and, I think, and, team, what you're looking for is, you remember that uh, Lincoln movie, 2012? Yeah, I never watched it, but yeah, I do. Okay, well, there's that one scene, and they were like, well, we can't get the votes, and, you know, people are, you know, they're like, well, what do we do? And then Lincoln basically stands up and says, like, I am the president of the United States, and I hold immense power, and you are going to get this done, whip, and I yeah, don't whip, care. Whip your dick out. You're the president. I mean, why did why do these people sweat the office so hard? So you can yeah. do something in a moment like this. But that's my a fantasy, thing, right? my erotic dream. This gets me excited. <laughs> is that the U.S. fucking goes to the United Nations Securities Council and says it gets the other two, fucking France and England, and say, guys, no fly zone over Gaza. They're gonna they're gonna do a fucking. Genocide. It doesn't even have to be as dramatic as that. All the Americans have to say to the Israelis is, Fuck if off. this gets out of hand, yes. you're on your own. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Fair Israelis enough. would not do it. Fair enough. No, well, I don't know. Netanyahu's pretty crazy, and he could do this on his own. But he's crazy, but he's not suicidal. I know, but right. the, but the but the but the erotic part of it is us forcibly stopping them. That's that that's the part that that makes me excited. And and so let me have that. And then the other part is that we. Um, you know, the other part is, uh, how does it end here? And, and, I, and I'm thinking about this, is that, um, well, I forgot the second part of that. Like, very exciting dream. I'm losing, see, I'm losing, I'm losing sight of the dream. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> but the so idea the is that we would, we would, we, that the, a fucking F USS Eisenhower and Ford or whatever, they're off the coast, are there to stop the, Israeli Air Force from leveling Gaza, but that's not what they're there for. They're there to box out and keep others from interfering, and that's that's why they're really there. It's really sad. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? There's like, you know, when you talk about um, when Mike brought oh, up... Oh, to Lincoln. depose Netanyahu. Sorry. We get the CIA to go depose Netanyahu. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. It's like under a normal society, Netanyahu's political career should have been over. Exactly. After, uh, what's oh, you know what's so bullshit is I, I'm hearing a lot of Israeli um commentary saying yeah this doesn't look very good for netanyahu it you know the failure of intel this is pretty bad he's probably out of there and then um they're like yeah you know we think that after this you know the shooting is over on this operation that he's probably gonna have to step down i'm like okay so this is like those horror movies where someone knocks jason Voorhees out with like a shovel and jason falls down and they start celebrating with their back turned towards him I'm like, he's going to step down after the shooting stops? Okay, if that's what you're telling him, he's just going to turn this into a fucking, like, regional fucking conflagration then. So then shooting never stops. Yeah. you know What are people, they doing? Get him out now. I mean, pe you know, people tend to forget there are people within Israel, you know, intelligence, you know, within the Mossad, that holds Netanyahu re responsible, if not responsible, as one of the main insiders of the assassination of Yensek Rabin because he was negotiating with the about the Oslo Accords with Yasser Arafat. Well, and he's also the without without. There's no question about this. He's the one that more or less created Hamas as it is today, right? He's the one that wanted Hamas. Hamas as a way to undermine the PLO and as a way to say, well, if we basically, well, there's multiple Palestinian authorities who would we negotiate. He wanted he Hamas. wanted Hamas because there are ones there they don't like the two state solution. He doesn't like the two state solution, so they have that in common. And so he said, hey, maybe we could go to war one day. And yet, look, here we here we fucking are. Was this really a mistake on his, his part, or was this part of his plan all along? Because it sounds like it's part of his plan, that evil motherfucker. 
Well, so, that I don't know. I'm not an yeah. expert on that. I'm just saying it <laughs> sounds like it sounds like this isn't exactly something he deeply oh, he, regrets. I'm not saying how did we get here? Did he manufacture this? I'm just saying I don't think he's exactly heartbroken over what happened. I think he's excited. But that's the thing, yeah, right? It's like right. there's there's no consequences anymore, right? And I think that that's at the top of our discussion. So, you know, the consequences of all these global leaders um, to take the type of actions that they've taken is like there's no responsible and consequences to their political career to anything, you know, like that. And, and the same thing, like you look at George uh, George Bush, you look at Condoleezza Rice, you look at all those figures that lead us into at the time that we we say like this is terrible, you know, these are bad things, but yet zero consequences to to their lives. Oh, there hasn't been consequences in American foreign policy for decades and decades. Exactly. I and, mean, and, and not just you know uh, the civilian, even the military. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Iraq War, I think they relieved only one general of combat ineffectiveness. During World War II, you know, if you screwed up a battle and you know multiple battles. Combat ineffectiveness, you're out of there. You're training troops. You're not leading troops in battle. Like countless times, they were just switching generals. You, you know, and that's not the case anymore. There's and, no, you know, an, a normal society or a normal polity. You know, the, the neoconservatives should be laughed out of the room and they should be nowhere near American foreign policy. And yet here they are giving talks on CNN, yeah. debating basically whether we should level Gaza. I mean, there's you know, no consequences for failure. And that's not just the U.S., right? Just the whole Western sphere of power in which everybody has suffered zero consequences for so many of the actions that when you look at it, you know, it's atrocity, right? When you look at the type of military actions that they've taken in so many places, it's not just from a global stage, but then you also look at domestically, like they suffer so little consequences. Um, and I think that that's what's wrong with the current Western system is that the population have a huge amount of amnesia about these people. And I don't know if part of it is that we're so consumed, uh, so overworked by our daily lives that that's not our focus, right? That's not our political mindset um, because uh, our day-to-day life is like, hey, if we have a family, we got to take the kids to this, uh, you know, after-school activity, got to bathe them, got to, you know, cook for dinner and stuff like that. So all the things that as a, a, you know, as part of civic responsibility just isn't there because it's not part of our daily schedule. Well, I look, I think that, working hard and being busy is is fine i think the problem is that and this is what i'm this is i guess this is why i am i am tend to be more dramatic about these things than most people is because it's not the it's not the consequences that i fear it's not oh you know america is gonna get wrecked by i don't know the rest of the world moves off the dollar and the dollar crashes and we become pauper like that's not what i fear what I fear is this hollowing out of the um, social ethic in the United States. It's already so debased that I just find it intolerable to live here. I think yeah. if I think what you fear is we're moving down the path that the Germans moved down in the sense that they was so seduced 
by these barbaric ideas and that once it was over and once everything was in ashes for them, there is going to be so much shame and it becomes almost impossible to come back from. And in a way, you could say this is why Germany kind of is dysfunctional, not a normal country. You know what? You know, the sick thing is, I, I think that that is something that Israel needs to contend with. That I think our problem is almost this, like, we don't, we're not even really that motivated to do this. We just don't give a shit. And we're going to be, the, I mean, I'm talking about the American people are mm -hmm. going to become these, we're going to become unknowing or silent or minor accomplices to one of the worst crimes in modern history. And we're just going to sleepwalk into it. And the problem is not that we've been seduced by the idea of killing Palestinians. It's that we didn't even notice that we did it. And our fate, our, the problem that we have, I think, is a little bit different than the one that Israel's facing and the one that Germany had to face, is that mm -hmm. like we're going to get sucked into this black hole. And we, don't, we didn't even really choose to do it. We just didn't pay enough attention to avoid it. And uh, we have all these opportunities we have these opportunities to take the off-ramp here and be finally just do the wrong. The amazing thing is that this could be such a turnaround moment for the United States. This is such an opportunity for us to regain some measure of our standing in the world by, by putting a cap on, like putting a hard stop to this and we're just squandering it. And I don't, my fear is that the United States just, become it just becomes a, a a place that is devoid of any and all meaning you know at least with germany they had to contend with they had to wrestle they had something to wrestle with they had something that they had to try and resolve to the they're still in that process it's something that they did they were the primary actor we're just going to be these pathetic side actors you know. No, there was a lot of this in Germany, too. I mean, if you actually, I, I would recommend, uh, you know, the movie Downfall 2004? Yes. And was, yeah, excellent it, movie. Yeah. You remember near the end, the actual character that was played, the actual woman, and she basically says, you know, like, oh, I thought I wasn't really responsible for any of this stuff. And like, you know, life kind of went on. But in the 60s, she visited uh, one of the White Rose graves, one of the dissidents. And she was my age and she knew better and she did something and I didn't. And I had to live with that. Right. Not live with that, but like, you know, that wasn't a moment of awakening and great shame. I think that's what you're highlighting, what America potentially is going through. Maybe if we even, well, that would be even hopeful for me in the sense that we might even have the capacity to feel shame. Yeah. And, well, and I think I would be so, I would be happy if we could even feel shame at that point. But I, so I think part of that problem is that like we've uh, the government is so propagandizing its people, right? Like I mean they made that as a as a legal thing to allow it to do that and that's why so much of the messaging of how we should think and evaluate the situation is top down. Right, it's the it's the top that is telling us how we should, um, uh, which side that we should be uh, siding with the uh, with the conflict, um, and that is being disseminated throughout our culture. And like I say, like you go to sporting events, you go, you look at basketball, you look at football, um, like that message is being passed down to us 
um, and that there's no there's no moral outrage from the top that sees this as being something other than uh, that is it's uh, on the Israeli side, um, and it's trying so hard to pass that message down to everybody that that is the right thing to do, and that's what it's been doing for so long about every other conflict that we have. And when people from the bottom are trying to tell the people on the top that, no, this is wrong, and there's no uh, change, there's no consequences, nothing changed. But, and that's the sad part where, you know, when you talk about this sense of like, we're on the wrong side of history, that we feel like as citizens, we have so low impact. Um, and you talk about like when Germany, how, you know, the question of like, how did these citizens, you know, uh, bought into the idea of, uh, you know, genociding the, the Jews uh, in their country? Well, it's that same type of method, right? It's from the top that tells you that these people are these, you know, monsters. They're the bad. They're the they're the cause of all the ills and all the evils in society. And they pass that message from above down and the people are buying into it. And, and I feel like there's a certain aspect that that's what we're doing in the U.S. Um, but at least, but I think the difference might be between, maybe this, maybe Mike, this is what I actually fear, is that we become mm -hmm. like the Japanese. I have a particular fear of being like the Japanese in this because at least the Germans acknowledge what happened at least the Germans, maybe if they, maybe some of them don't really take the have the proper full sense of moral culpability, whatever it is, I don't know. But they're in the pro at least the frame of reality has now been erected, and they've got to figure out a way to live within that frame. Okay, the problem is now clear, and they they you know, Japan, they won't even acknowledge what fucking happened, and that's going to be us. We're going to be Japan. We're like the rest of the world is going to be like, and 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 you know, it's it's not just going to be uh, two countries that are going around, or three countries maybe going around saying what happened. I mean, it's going to be a like a lot of the world. I mean, this one is undeniable. This isn't fucking, uh, you know, mid twentieth century. This is now. We're seeing real time images of this, and yet haven't we become that way? Huh. Haven't we already become that way? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, at... that's what I'm saying. It's like we're seeing this in real time, and it's like we're the Japanese denying that a war crime is happening. But with the Japanese, at least they can obfuscate and say that there's not enough evidence, so that there clearly is. But here, every single person on Earth is watching images of it. So don't you know? We don't even have the excuse that the Japanese have, which is relatively scant availability of the copious amounts of physical evidence that uh, that's a, that's around. But here, everyone's seen it. Everyone knows it. There's no denying what's going to happen. They're, in fact, they're just openly saying what they're going to do. And yet we're still just sort of like, no, nah, there's nothing wrong. Like we won't even, it's not, it, we're going to be Japan. You see what I'm saying? Like it's going to be. Oh, well, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, I think in East Asian culture, there's a sense of shame. And maybe that's what plays into it. Maybe, but As Japan, saying, won't, but how can they feel shame if they were denying it even happened? Well, I think may, they're denying it that it happened because it's in the sense that we are not a people like that because we shouldn't feel 
you know, how shame plays in. We, sh we don't feel shame for the, therefore, didn't happen. Americans have no sense. And in a way, if you look at, you know, we, we say, yeah, slavery happened, but it was good. You know, you're seeing that with, uh, what's his name, DeSantis or in Texas? That's such a, I mean, but that's such a crazy take. I mean, that's not, I don't think. I, I'm not. I'm not saying this is uh -huh. the truth or not. I'm just saying there might. No, I mean, even I relative by American standards. I mean, no one really. That's that's insane. <laughs> well, you but know? the thing is, that, like, if you were to judge by, you know, Twitter sentiments, it's like there's a big shift in that viewpoint. You get what I'm saying? I mean, there's a big shift in rehabilitating a lot of these past um, recognitions that we see as being morally wrong. Um, I mean, you're seeing a rehabilitation. Are we really going of, back on slavery, you think? Of I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I'm asking. I don't. Uh -huh. Well, I mean, but the rehabilitation that it wasn't bad, you know, like that, that it wasn't slavery. as bad as okay. it is. You know, we're not going back into a system of slavery, but to go and say that, you know, it wasn't as bad as, you know, we think it is. Are you, uh, there's are you a really lot of that, that talk. Are you, are you guys really seeing that? Like a, like a, like a moral revisionism about slavery in america or? well we kind of already did when the you know after the civil war mm -hmm. i mean this is how you get uh what is it uh it's about states rights you know oh the honorable war all that you know southern propaganda the lost cause. that already hmm? the, lost, the cause. lost cause exactly all of this it wasn't about slavery it was about you know states rights and you know when people say that it's like well the state right to do what mm -hmm. and you know one of the reasons why the south you know and the thing is, you know, the Southerners obfuscate this, but, you know, when they revolted, they they were very clear it's about preserving slavery. And, you know, you could say North was about states' rights because you're a lawyer, you know, the Dred Scott case, right? And the North was just like, we're not going to enforce federal law, states' rights. Yeah. The anti, you know, so, you know, it's a constant debate, but I don't think we're going to end up like the Japanese, though. I mean, they're... They have their own idiosyncrasies, and that might be tied to something else. Yeah, but... I guess I'm just trying to draw the distinction between Germans, Germany, and Japan on this. Uh, I'm not mm. I, okay. I'm not saying we're going to end up like Japan. What I'm saying is that between the two, I think our problem is going to be more similar to the Japanese, where we don't even seem to be capable of recognizing what happened. Mm. You see what I'm saying? That that that's the more you know. At least Germans were forced to, you know acknowledge and formally accept you know the reality of what had happened and 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 no longer pretend that they could hide it um but but you know J japan almost is would be in a better moral situation than us if this were to happen in, in the sense that i mean just on this one front that they have to hide it whereas we don't even have to hide it i mean we're just like okay yeah i'm seeing these dead babies. So what? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and, and it's I really think... weird. It's like there's no amount of like evidence and 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 imagery or fact or you know anything of of human atrocity that is going to make us give a shit. We're just going to be like, okay, dead baby. They're they're Palestinian babies, right? Okay, shit happens. Yeah. So, and, and I think the troubling, the trouble, the more troubling thing is that. They're so convinced of the other viewpoint that they have to generate fake content to um, to justify. It. And when you and when those fake contents are 
dispel, they're not, they're unable to turn away from their viewpoint, um, and that you know they they have to latch onto something else to justify their viewpoint. And I think that that's the scary thing, right? Where no matter what type of evidence that you show them to say this is bad, this is wrong, you know, like that. Look at it from a different perspective. That they're unwilling and incapable of doing that because they're so fixated to a single standpoint that, you know, it is uh, uh, what Israel is doing is just and right. You know, there's there's no discussion of nuance. There's no discussion of possibility of a different lens to look through. Um, and especially when they latch on to what they think is evidence for their claims and when it's proven to be wrong, that at, even at that point, they're unwilling to bend and waver. And I think that we've gotten to a state where um, so many people have viewpoints that are just so binary in that way. And that, you know, no matter how much evidence that you provide them, it's just not going to change. And, and I feel that that's part, of, that's part of that helplessness that we feel as regular citizens. Yeah, Mike, you know, honestly, I'd like, I, I think more and more about like what, what a person living through, you know, um, in Nazi Germany, like, like, what are you supposed to do as a regular person? I, I, that's a dramatic way of framing this, yes. But I, more, if this, as this unfolds, and, and given all the other shit that we've been doing over the past fucking forever, right, um, through my lifetime. But, like, this has come to this head where it's like this moral test. We're going to fail it. And then at the end of that, I'm just going to start thinking, like, I, I can't help but start thinking that I'm living in, an, in in a society that is, like, very capable of the absolute worst forms of evil uh, uh, that that we can, uh, like, uh, possible. We have chosen barbarism. Yeah, we've chosen yeah, barbarism. And I yet agree. we're supposed to just what are we supposed to do? Like how do you as an individual I'm not I'm not even saying how do we save America? How what do we do? No, I'm saying what do we do as individuals at that point? Where yeah. like, this is the society you live in now. You're living in a society that chose barbarism and didn't even flinch and didn't even recognize that that's what it did. And 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 even if it were to come to that realization, it wouldn't care. What what do you do well, then? Well, I think what? even also, it, we don't even have institutions set up that allows us to make those changes, right? Like that, 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 and that's the reason why well, for so the changes. long. I'm saying, what, I'm, forget the changes. I'm saying, what do you as an individual, how do you, how do you deal with that? Like, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, what if you were an actual, rational, morally, uh, you know, aware and, you know, person living through Nazi Germany? Like, what do you do? Yeah. It's, it's a great question. Yeah. And that, that, that's the thing that, that, you know, Mike, I, and someone like that, I think that's what I'm like kind of worried about is like, what, what yeah, do, I feel the same what way. Do normal people do living in a society like this. I don't really have an answer for you. It's, I mean, yeah. like, it's, I mean if you really I think about it, it's really terrifying. The answer I also do have for you is pretty pathetic. When you think <laughs> about it. Yeah. You know the Chinese story? I think it was Jin uh, Wei or Jin Wei. Okay. The bird, you know, uh, the bird was a little girl. She basically drowned in a sea, 
right? And she got reincarnated into a, a, a little bird. And this little bird would basically pick up a stone and throw it into the sea, right? She wants to build a sea dam so other kids don't drown in the future. And, you know, eventually the water was like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this, little bird? You know it's not going to make a goddamn difference. And the bird said, even if that's the case, I know what I must do. And I will not go against my nature. And I will keep doing what I must do. Maybe. Maybe that's the only... I mean, maybe you just have to forget outcomes and just be like... Or, I have to or you can hope, nature. in a way, for a miracle. Yeah. In a sense. You remember Mao's... Uh, what is that... Uh, when he recited the story of the foolish old man who removed mountains? No. So, well, this is uh, the foolish old man who removed mountains. This is another one Mao recited about the Chinese Revolution. And, you know, it's basically an old man. He lived between a mountain. And his family has to traverse around the mountain. And it is a goddamn pain to get to the, to the next town, right? Right. right. So he says to a kids, we're going to remove the mountain. And we're going to remove the mountain. And we're going to do it, you know, one by, you know, a rock at a time, right? And his neighbor's looking and it's like, this guy's fucking retarded. Like, you know, you're going to literally remove a mountain by your, you know, with your family, one rock at a time, right? How long is that going to take? It'll take forever, right? And basically, he said, maybe that's true. But eventually, you know, our grandkids, our grandkids' grandkids, the mountain will be removed, and we're going to have a straight path. And the story goes that God saw his determination, the heavens, and they removed the mountain for him. You know, you pray for a deus ex machina. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's... Look, they're not encouraging because it's irrational to hope, but maybe hope is all you have left. This is a question that's beyond... I think it's, I think it's sanity. <laughs> I think what I'm trying to preserve here is a level of sanity in the sense that you, it, it just seems insane to me to see the, 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 a country that engages in behaviors like this and has absolutely no it's not even that we don't properly classify right and wrong it's that we don't even care anymore it we don't care about right and wrong it you can we even if it were proven beyond a reasonable doubt to everyone in this country that this is wrong we don't care <laughs> we don't care it is uh you know i'm not even sure i care guys <laughs> i'm not even really sure i care you know, I, I do think you care. You did the pod. Yes, but I, it's just. You do sound distressed. I am distressed because, um, I don't know, man. I, it's a feeling in my. I, it's nothing more than a feeling in the pit of my stomach that this, this is a very dark event and we are not living up. Like, we're not playing the right role here. You know? Yeah. I mean, I don't, think, not a, I don't think it's. We're not playing it, the right role. I don't think it's lack what? of care. I think it's lack of um, our ability to have any impact. You know, like how, how because I, I think a lot of people care. 
Um, I but think the average just, American probably has more impact than the average global citizen right now in the sense yeah, that absolutely. It's, our, it's our aircraft carriers out there and it's our president thinking about next year, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So, but it's, oh. it's just that we've been so conditioned to feel so helpless, right? Because historical um, events has conditioned us to feel that way. You know, that no I matter what we do makes any helpless. Impact helpless but it's also this weird most of the my friends who 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 see this you know they, it's like we recognize how shitty and fucked up and crazy and awful it is but at the same time we're talking about it as if it's a kind of fictional event do you know th does that make sense to you like it's almost like we're watching you know it's like, like we're series. living in a dream and yeah. in a way for a lot of people that lived through nazi germany it was like that. Really, it was as they were living through a dream. Mm. You, the downfall movie. You remember? Yeah, I, I, you remember I don't really. Movie? I should rewatch it. I I only barely remember it. it. Yeah, there was a part where they were dancing, and the protagonist was like, "It feels like we are in a dark dream that's warping into a nightmare." I'm uh, butchering the paraphrasing, mm -hmm. but there, you know, what you're saying in a way, there is that feeling. Not to say that America's Nazi Germany. I'm not making those comparisons. I'm just saying there are, you know, some of the parallels of... i think you know I, I was thinking this i think we're kind of an anti-nazi state in the sense that we are so formally opposed to nazism we are formally opposed to nazism in all respects but the outcome of that is sort of this bizarre mirror image of it so if you're curious there is a book by sheldon wolin and it's called uh democracy inc okay and he described what you're describing and he called it inverted totalitarianism Interesting. you okay. have the control aspects of totalitarianism but without the coercive apparatuses and right. you have the formal veneer of a democracy that's what it feels like that's that's really what it feels it feels like and 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 it's a it's a really sick thing because it 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 mirrors the function of it but because it's inverted like we just it it, it 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 reassures us every moment that that's not what we are mm -hmm. it's it's this insurance that that's not what we are we could be nothing further than that because look at how much we we defeated the nazis we we hate the nazis uh we make fun of nazis we punch nazis uh, so this is thing though i think you know i, I don't want to i think the problem is we hate the nazis not that they're not you know the nazis are definitely evil they're definitely bad but we've done the way that we've educated people about the holocaust and nazism and in introducing this moral framework we've forgotten the most important aspect of history which is to try to understand the nazis so we don't do it again and the problem is we do not we don't do a very good job of trying to understand what the hell happened yeah we just I mean, we caricaturize it or, or we caricaturize you know. it. And it's not that, you know, they are evil people. They are definitely evil people. But to say that Nazis are absolutely evil and end of story does, I think, a disservice in trying to understand what has happened so we don't fall into the same pitfalls. And I think what you're the frustration and the dislike is in the sense that we are going through the same pitfalls yeah. and we don't even know it. Yeah, and we can't imagine that, it, you know, if it were to happen again, that it wouldn't just... Oh, it absolutely would happen. What was that? Uh, oh God, there was that uh, experiment. It's in Yale, and there was like the lethal dose of shock. 
Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, two thirds of the people would do it. And it's like, well, the authority figure told me to do it. So I did it. Man, there was a picture that scared the shit out of me the other day. Uh, You know, Reuters had um, a couple um, journalists killed. Yeah. And um, I was talking to um, a mutual on Twitter, uh, Cindy, about this killing and she had said you know they is you know the 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 media had reported that two soldiers uh two reporters were killed but they didn't say that they were killed by the israelis and i said you know i was i was watching that report on al jazeera and they said and i said not only were they killed by the israelis but the survivors and eyewitnesses of that event were saying on television very clearly they were like they targeted us because we were uh uh media. okay they're like we had our press uh badges on our chest and on our car and they fired at us after seeing it and i'm telling you they were targeting us and then i there was a picture of these idf soldiers that were like i guess removing the burned out husk of the car where all these people that were they were trapped in and died in and there was one face of one of the soldiers man he was cackling I mean, he was laughing. I mean, I mean, I don't necessarily mean that that was one hundred percent him laughing at the death of these uh, of these journalists, all Arab, by the way. Um, but the face was like, "What the fuck am I looking at, man? This guy's laughing," you know, with his hands on this car as they're shoving it off the road. And I was like, "What are we getting ourselves into, man? How this like where? How did we?" You know, it just—it's all come down to this now. I don't know. I'm being dramatic, but well, I mean, I, I think that you know, there's there's a certain sense of reality in which the general public has come to accept and no longer find it shocking or outrage, right? Um, because I mean, same thing with like Julia Assange releasing the videos and just listening to how the military personnel's view another human life in that manner, right? It, like, it, it's everybody's been conditioned to look at uh, situations and people with uh, such disdain that they're not worthy of any type of humane treatment or that they're human beings, right? Um, and with the Israeli, it was at the defense uh, um, administrator or whatever his position was in terms of, you know, describing uh, the Palestinians as, you know, uh, animals, right? And that's what it, it's become. It's a, we're conditioned to, uh, when we see an enemy, we view them not as human beings, but as something subhuman and that it's justified in how the way we treat them. Um, so that's, that's the sad part of it is that so many of us have been conditioned to view things in that way. And the, the Did you just see that tweet of that guy, that Israeli guy who was like, did a TikTok video of him drinking water and turning his lights yeah, on. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, like, shit like that. Like what the fuck, man? Exactly. You know, you know, like sort of taunting Gazans cause they were going to have their water and electricity turned off and, Yep, yep. And that's how it's become. It's like, how do we lack such, a, a, you know, of humanity toward another being? You know, like that, that dude, guy just looks like the suffering. Jewish, 
he looked like just some kind of like Jewish bro guy that grew up in like, you know, New Jersey or something that I, that I'd be, that I, that is just like one of us, you know, he like seemed like a very familiar kind of guy. I mean, I have no idea what he's like, but he looked like some guy that just grew up here, <laughs> you know, and I was like, Oh, look, you remember in uh, Star Trek, uh, TNG, they were saying, look, the greatest villains often, you know, cast themselves as heroes. And they actually look like us. They don't, you know, wear monstrous clothing and whatnot. And, you know, this is to tie back to the Stanford prison experiment. They specifically screened out, you know, crazy people. These were middle class white American kids. And yet when they were put into the institutional roles, not just of the prison guards, but also the prisoners, they embraced those roles fully. I mean, there's a lot of criticism of the Stanford prison experiment, but, you know, I'm there. It's not yeah. as surprising. No, as... it is. You, no, no. And part of it. Yeah. You know, part of it, I think, is my fear as a Chinese person going through the last several years, particularly through COVID, that I felt like the the the, the safety net of a social ethic of basic human decency actually wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a sort of vertigo of like, how bad could this actually get? And then I started seeing Asian people being attacked all over the city and then people just equivocating about it yeah and i was and and i'm like okay so this is a lot more perilous than i thought this the society i live in i i got i i was really changed my view about it as an asian person got living in new york city and watching what was going on and and, and literally seeing people saying some of the craziest most racist things about asian and chinese people in particular without batting an eyelash and having absolutely no shame and, and and it wasn't even that they didn't know what they were doing. They knew what they were doing. They were they were ecstatic about doing it because they were given an excuse to do it. Yeah. And I, I was like, this is this society. It lacks a, a moral substructure that I had always assumed was there. It is not there. You know. Well, and like, I guess I mean, this is, the fear is that it's confirming those fears for me. It's not necessarily that my heart breaks for Gazans, though it. You know, I don't feel good about what's going on, but I don't have a particular sensitivity to their plight. I am morally outraged by it, but I'm not emotionally wrecked by it because I don't have personal skin in that game. I don't have relatives there. I don't know people in Gaza. But you're afraid, I think, of what it's doing to the Western or the American. Yeah, because I glimpsed at I glimpsed it myself as an Asian person. I got a glimpse of it, and I'm like, that is a very dark fucking hole, guys. And I would add in the context that whatever we do to the Gazans, we will inevitably import it back home. One hundred percent. That is the in always the fucking pattern. Yeah, and it's this always is you know, the pattern. As I said before, you know, I said somewhere else before. I've tweeted that you know, Westerners aren't mad at Hitler because of what he did. What he did was you know, the West has done in all throughout the non-West world. The reason why they're mad is because he broke the European bro code, which is you can do all this shit, but you can't do it on the home continent. The yeah. problem is it inevitably comes back. When Bush said we'll fight him over there so we don't have him fight him over here, that's not true. We're going to fight him over there and we're going to fight him here. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I think that's all about good. this outbreak of uh, AR 15 violence is this, this was a, this was a, this was a gun that was meant and designed to kill. Vietnamese farmers uh, 
and that was why it was designed. It was designed specifically for that. And now it's killing American children. It came back. You know, you can't. But the thing is that, like, you know, like what you guys just mentioned in terms of that Western viewpoint um, and Tin, when you talk about, like, you know, uh, Europe's response to Hitler, that, you know, it's, you know, they're disappointed because it did it to its own people. Right and not to somebody else, and I think that that's part of this, that same thinking in which they view that any other people would view the world and behave like they do, like that. That they think that uh, Chinese, the, the Chinese, you know, like that would uh, do the same uh, type of things that they've done once they come into power. And I think that that's where they fear. They fear that that they understand their own brutality. They understand the nature of who they are. And, yeah, and if they, they ever, yeah, if they ever let up, it'll just come. You know, they're, they'll, the revenge will be had. You know. Yeah, they fear that other people will behave like they do. The the brutality, the the nature of who they are. But you know, like China has done none of that. It has not. Uh, approach in that way. And I think that that's part of, you know, understanding the Western mindset, you know, like that. And especially when you read uh, quotes of, um, uh, what's his name from uh, the British prime minister post-World War II, you know, like that, that, you know, uh, that's the type of mindset that they have is they view, yeah, Churchill, they viewed the world uh, through their lens and they fully understand the the brutal nature that is within them, and that they fear that um, that will be the consequences that they'll suffer if somebody else comes into power. Um, and that's you know that's the unfortunate thing. And I think that a lot of uh, Western common people don't recognize um, just the brutal nature of those people that has been in power for the longest time in the Western structure. Yeah. Could I, I probably going to end soon. Yeah. Why don't you give us a final thought? I, I've, I've taken enough of your guys' time. It's been a really great maybe I'll conversation. Give you a more yeah. mm-hmm. Maybe I'll give you a more optimistic thought. Yeah, please do. I actually wanted to say this yeah. in uh, the, the Twitter space. Yeah. I've seen Chinese people become like the Americans in the 90s. And I've seen the Americans of today become like the Chinese of the 90s. You remember 15 years ago, two decades ago, when we looked at China, when some, you know, there was that little girl that got injured and no one gave a shit and no one helped her. Yeah. You remember on Chinese CCTV? Yeah. There are a number of videos like that, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you watch the CCTVs of stuff today, and when you see someone injured, everyone just rushes to help the social solidarity, right? And it feels like China and the U.S. switched places. Does it not sometimes? Yeah, though, I've always thought that that was a little... Maybe I'm wrong, but I thought that that was a little overplayed, (laughs) but yeah. Well, what I'm saying, and, you know, when you talk about the middle class, Mm -hmm. upper middle class, professional, managerial class... Mm -hmm. Today, the constant, the pure concern for themselves, right? Yeah. I know for a fact that that's how the upper middle class in China during the reform era felt. Sure. 
And the reason why I'm saying maybe we could leave on an optimistic note, whether you think humans are infallible or blah, 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 you know, Americans are Chinese. And, you know, I have a very negative opinion about white people. Mm -hmm. You know, this just comes out of the COVID pandemic and Americans especially. But, you know, there is a common humanity in both Chinese and Americans in the sense that it's the institutions and it's the political organizations that could either bring out the best or the worst in both of us, in all of us. And I think, you know, you, you, you see it, you know, it, it's maybe it's overblown, but it's not far to say that, you know, China today, the average Chinese person is much more concerned and caring about the well-being of others, which is not the case during the reform period when it's just all about me, 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 me. And I think we're seeing the exact opposite with the Americans where the other regarding this is just completely gone by today. And I think this is a consequence of the political organizations rather than just maybe something that's... So your optimistic note is that if it can go, if it can disappear, it can come back. If it disappear, it can come back. And if it... Well, the flip side of that optimism is that, you know, we've also got a lot of barbarism in us that could also come. Yeah, that that's 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 what, you know, I do fundamentally believe with your optimistic view there. But the problem is, I think that we're this is a test of that. And this may be one of those things that we can't. It's a permanent record. It's on our permanent record. There may not be an easy to this may not be something that we can easily come back from. Um, and, and I'm not even sure how widespread, you know, it's recognized the optimistic view that I'll, uh, we should, I, I apologize for taking so much of your time guys, but this is a really good conversation. Um, is that I do think that I'm seeing signs that the U S government is worried about what's going on. I don't, I don't know if it's based on the moral consequences of what they're doing or whether they're scared about the larger war or whatever. But there does seem to be some indication that both the government and therefore the media, which is a mouthpiece for the government now effectively on these foreign policy issues, is trying to hit the brakes. So I'm not completely uh, have surrendered to the idea that the U.S. can't play a positive role here, Mm -hmm. but I'm looking for more. But so far, I am seeing that it's not all hope is lost. I think that there is definitely... Even the Wall Street Journal was running pictures, like, like I said, of dead Palestinians on its front page, uh, saying that this is a, a, could it be a real nightmare? Um, so, I uh, that was good to see. For me. Yeah. So I, I think as a bit of optimism, I think that um, the human behavior is very much you can understand it through psychology, right? And I think that if you set up parameters and institutions that uh, foster um, a certain reaction out of people, um, where if you have competition, but how do you structure the competition where it encourages people to behave in, um, in wanting to encourage and challenge to improve as opposed to uh, encourage uh, challenge to defeat uh, somebody else. Um, I think that that does impact how the way we view things and shape society. Um, and I think that the people in power have recognized psychology and set up an environment that is to shape people to respond in a certain way. And I think that if more people are aware and wake up 
to how that psychology works that we may be able to form a more um, compassionate and peaceful society to understand uh, what are the parameters that will shape us to behave in a particular way. Um, and hopefully that, you know, in history, it's going to go through a lot of uh, shitty things to happen to kind of wake people up to understand ourselves and understand our society. And this is a moment in that history. All right, guys. Uh, yeah. You know, as Gramsci said, optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect. That's how you probably got to approach it. Or That sounds about right, actually. I think yeah, that's, I that's a pretty busy way of... Or, you know, Martin Luther King said, you know, a hard head and a soft heart. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. So, yeah. That sounds about right. I would agree with that. So, you know, that's, you know, it's, um, that's all you can do, you know, at the end of the day. Well, the story's not over. I'm, you know, I'm still following it. I, I really, really hope that we, you know, something good comes out of this. Um, cause it's just been too many, it's just been the United States just being just, failing just l after l fail after fail and this, it's an actually an opportunity for us to do the right thing mm -hmm. all right guys uh really appreciate the conversation um we should we should round up again i mean there's there's a lot going on in the foreign policy world and it seems like this is something you guys like to discuss so yeah. uh you know let's let's uh i'd always be happy to uh talk about uh what is it uh, military industrial complex or U.S. China relations. I did a, you know, that was my area of focus of study. Absolutely, so. I think it's a huge area of interest for on this pod. So, mm -hmm. all right, guys, have a good night. Thanks. Okay, have a good night.